it's me and my engineers. We usually research a lot of stuff. We try to join some people so that we have this kind of deadline. We need to finish the product by a week or two and then see how it goes from there. So that's actually how our kind of started. It's just me, code by myself, like for a week or two, my lead engineers, and then, okay, push it out. Let's put some like maybe $1,000 for marketing purposes and see if it works. If it works, like, let's talk to some of this guy. Let's do this stuff. And then right now we have 100,000 users. That was Ricky, co-founder of Paras, Arcana, and Acoma. If you're like me, you probably only know Ricky from Paras, the OG NFT marketplace on Nier. But did you know that Arcana and Acoma have hundreds of thousands of users each? That's why I enjoy this podcast so much. From the very beginning, Ricky takes us on a wild journey. Humble, hilarious, insightful. He starts reminding us of the Paras mission to expand the endgame of NFTs beyond mere digital art or PFPs. Along the way, we touch on a bunch of topics such as why they had to rename Paras Comics into a comma as they were trying to make inroads into the Indonesian comics market. Hint, the general population does not like NFTs or whatever they associate with them, as much as you may think. Overall, this podcast has a little bit of everything. We touch on the cultural, such as operating from Indonesia and some local folklore and comics. Spooky warning, there are some ghost stories ahead. There are also a lot of builder and operations lessons. And finally, sprinkled along the way, we touch on the community and a lot of personal introspection. Where are we now? Both Web3 in general, the near ecosystem, our projects, and even us as individuals. I hope that you enjoy this podcast as much as we do, and that, as always, it serves as the beginning of a conversation. Without further ado, I'll let you enjoy this wide ranging conversation with Sir Ricky. Enjoy. Hello, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Wild User Interviews podcast with me, AVB. Today, I am in person with Sir Ricky. Thank you so much, everybody, for coming here from Bali. We are meeting here at Jakarta in our Microsoft. Glad you can make it here. It is an absolute honor to be here, Elson. To thank you for being my guinea pig. There aren't many podcasts recorded in person. And yeah, we're using this AI camera. Why is it focused all the way back there? It, it doesn't like me, apparently. It, it focusing just on Ricky, which is fine. He's a VIP guest today. We'll hope that nothing else fucks up while we're in person. <laughs> Ricky. I am so happy to be here. I have to say, everything about this trip has been not quite what I expected in a good way. Okay. Uh-huh. Maybe we, can you start telling me the story about this building? Like this building. The Paris office is a castle. If, no, no, if you yeah. actually look behind us and for the people just listening at home, there are a lot of these amazing chairs. They're Paris branded. There's like a lot of office space, meeting areas, the place looks modern, professional. I'm bummed that I miss the team that comes in on Wednesdays and Tuesdays. What's, what's the story behind the story it? behind it. Actually, like we started from, so this building is separate to three buildings. So in the early days, we just used like one building. It's, and then we just grew. So it was 2021, we started moving to like one building. It was five times 15 meters in terms of wide and length. And then it was just like maybe five people, like just me, I think my founder and like some of the early engineers. And then we grew to maybe 30 plus more people. And then we just bought the building beside two buildings. And then we just break all the walls and make it as a single big building. So that's 
that's actually how it happened. And we started doing the work from office. So it's like hybrid nowadays. So just day Wednesday, you go to the office and then the other days, you have to work from home remotely. Gross. 30 people? Are they all developers, marketing people? Are you one of those people with an army of scammers? And- <laughs> yeah, it's coming kind of from the like wide range of like the ground that we have. Engineers, we have marketers, we have business development. And I think the unique thing about us is that we have a lot of comic them. We did a lot of editors, story writers, and then illustrators. So that's what like combos of the 30 plus people uh, working here at the office. Which leads to my next question. There is Paras, which uh-huh. is a market, NFT marketplace a lot of people would be familiar with. But there's also more things. I remember that back in the day, somebody mentioned that the Paras vision and the goal was to have the comics mm-hmm. side of things. Yeah. I don't think I've seen it much of it or I may not be up to date. Can you give us an overview of what that comics world mm-hmm. entails? Yes. The big vision of Paras is to expand the game of NFTs. We try whatever it takes so that we can expand the game of NFTs. It's not just digital art. It's not just PFPs. We need to take a deeper look into it to see what verticals would work, what verticals wouldn't work with NFTs. So then we tried to experiment with, with comic. That's our first new verticals, new markets that we're trying to tap in. Which year did you start the experimentation? So it was how? 2021, late 2021. We started the experiment in late 2021, but then it's pretty rough. Not a lot of people in the crypto space likes comic. So then we changed a lot of strategy. And right now the comic side, it's mostly web trying to be web-free, like 2.5 kind of things. But then it actually has a lot of corrections nowadays. We do have... 150,000 downloads on App Store and also Google Play. We've been in the top three, top five free comic apps in Indonesia. What is the app called? Coma. We rebranded it to Coma because funny thing is that there are a lot of comic readers, comic artists, they don't really like NFTs. No one likes NFTs. I don't like NFTs. No man, you you love the NFTs. But so so that's why we need to rebrand it. If you still use it in, in, in its name, then not might be not a lot of people will will find it like real. So then we need to rebrand it. Was it called Paris before? Yeah, it was called Paris Comic. Okay. So that's basically the reason why we rebranded it to Coma so that we can gather to the needs of these web shoe readers, web shoe artists. Oh, that's awesome. So a comma, by the way, I am low-key pushing for near to be rebranded because my theory is, and I grew up speaking Spanish uh-huh. and I speak English and a little bit of German if I'm drunk. You should always pick names that are able to be pronounced with the most basic phonetics in any language. Uh-huh. Something like Soi. Uh-huh. Basically, if you go by Japanese sort of vowels, Soi, yeah. Solana, it needs uh-huh. to be very clear vowels. It's hard to fuck it up. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I, I first noticed that because some Venezuelan couples in Australia, <laughs> that's how they choose. Yeah. Son is called Gabriel, Daniel, Daniel, Daniel. It's the same name. So yeah, near is hard to say. Yeah. Even within the English language, depending on your accent. So anyway, that's a long way to say that a comma is a great name. Thank you. Yeah. A comma. It actually comes from Japanese comma. So comma means a panel, like a comic panel. No way. That's how it, you know, that's how the name. That's awesome. So if I were to download the comma app right now, it, like, how does a comic work? Can you walk me through the user journey? It's just, it's just like any other digital comic platform. So you just log in with your email account and then you create comics in there. 
there are several comics that you can read for free, and then some comics that you need to pay with our currency, which is called Mantra. So that's how it works right now. We're right now doing a lot of stuff in the background, like how can we move this web to audiences? Like we have almost 150K. So how can we move this audience, migrate this user into web to audiences? I don't know, perhaps the in-app currency could be cryptos. Perhaps we could NFT. There are a lot of things that we are thinking that we're discussing internally, but I cannot really say which one that we're going to do. Does everything still like undecided yet? We're still discussing it thoroughly. Bro, this is wild. I've known you for years. I literally slept at your office two days ago and I didn't really know about a coma. So yeah. just to confirm, uh-huh. at the moment, the coma, it's a web 2.5-ish hybrid. How much of that user journey is on chain? Right now, it's actually zero. Like we're currently developing it. So still, we're actually still figuring out which chains that we are going to work with. Because it's, every chain has their own advantages, I'll say. So, you know, figuring out, talking to a lot of different chains to see which one is the best. I'm not saying that we are not going to just near, near had potential, but they're still trying to see which chains that could support our initiative, which means that it, it is comic, right? It's comic, it's manga, like perhaps we have several chains that has this set of audiences that we can target on. Trader. I tell you honest, I think you're smart. And for everyone listening, you have the users. You have something that people like, that people want, and uh-huh. we need to do a better job at identifying the builders and uh-huh. at supporting people that are doing the work. Yeah, kudos to you. I- I'm curious, what has the reception been like in other blockchain ecosystem? Are there foundations or business people out there that are perhaps more hungry to get these kind of projects or maybe more open to the idea? Are they usually trying to approach you with financial incentives or are there, are they trying to be differentiated into the technology or something like a SUI? Do they claim to have something that may be more suitable for that specific um, use case? Yeah. I think it's right now a lot of foundations, obviously they're going to be a lot more conservative with all things, including not just financially, but also non-financial because some of them lay off a lot of employees that they don't and they have the resources to support more and more projects. In general, I really don't see a lot of different approach from these foundations. They don't seem to be that hungry compared to like in a bull market scenario. Right now, pretty much more conservative to see that, all right, so you have all these users, for example, and how can we move it on chain? Is it going to help us or is it going to just like not in wallets on chain with not a lot of activity? So the type of response is mostly what we got from the foundation. So like overall, I'll say they're not really as excited as I thought, for example, that we have 100k plus users and we actually have a lot of, not really a lot of, but like a lot of transactions, people buying chapters, reading comics and whatever it is. And that makes me wonder whether our approach is good or not, like to, to this foundation. Like actually a lot of this foundation, they do expect a lot of volumes, means that they expect a lot of DeFi apps should be onboarded, not this type of stuff. So they don't really like, for example, games and then like this, whatever it is, they don't bring TVL, they don't bring that much volume. So unless you are like a DeFi apps, I don't think they'll be that interested in working with. So it's, it's like the foundation tried to, not near foundation, I'm saying like in general, like the foundation, they, they want to have this 
best in the bear market, which one of the easiest is to have a big DVL, means that you have liquidity and then it hopefully that will grow your ecosystem, not the other way around. It sounds like a false game because, and I actually spoke about it with Mike's podcast, which is fresh in my mind because I was editing it this morning. There's always a groupthink problem where foundations were first very aggressive giving money because somebody else is giving money. Yeah, uh-huh. And now it's like the reverse. Like, you, don't, but you don't, you don't want to be the weird one spending yeah. all this cash when nobody else is. And it gets worse when you let somebody else decide the KPAs that matter for your work. Uh-huh. Yeah. You're a foundation and you're going to use the TVL of an ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Some blockchains will be smart to acknowledge, hey, we're not going to compete against an Ethereum and their whatever billions of dollars in TVL, but we can compete elsewhere. Yeah. Which leads to my next series of questions. I'm really interested. I always questioned the near foundation or even the near ecosystem in general approach of being comfortable going against the crowd. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. We basically ignored DeFi, uh-huh. even though proximity was doing stuff in the background. We basically ignored NFTs, the commercial yeah. creative type, even though the creatives DAO is out there doing their thing. No comments. And they've always gone for that Web 2.5 mm-hmm. crowd. And I'd like to think that there's more of a long-term vision there. Keep the network alive now, get some transactions mm-hmm. in, validate the technology. Have you approached them or have you had conversations around Coma? Coma, yes. We had a lot of like, like with foundations. Like, I'm, I'm very close to the foundation, like, since Attic Day. I uh, hope so. And a lot of, I'm actually like a lot of like, partnering chart of funds that, that keeps changing. Back then it was this guy and then this, this guy. So actually, we do have this one. I'm guy that really works with us closely that relates all the messages here and there. So yeah, so we're very close with the foundation up until now. And then we, we basically do a lot of discussion with them. Whether these products would be benefit what I guess, whether the type of products one that they need. And then we need to align set up like some kind of like KPIs for us and also the foundation itself, because both of us need it right, so that we can achieve like everything together. For a comma, we did a discussions with the foundation, like the near foundation team, basically pitched them a comma, which was Paraskomic back then, pitched them out Paraskomic and this new initiative that we are doing, which is called Arcana. And I'll go to Anna. I'll share That one I knew because I went on an on-chain investigation yeah. to see who were these naked people putting so many transactions through. Little did I know that I had him sitting next to me all this time. <laughs> but yeah, we'll touch on Arcana soon. Yeah, we'll but yeah, Arcana. Let's click pitch like bars to make and also Arcana. And then we had a lot of meeting like every two weeks or even like weekly basis. And then turns out like Arcana is the one that is most suitable within the near ecosystem. It matches the KPI, it matches the needs, matches the technology that near foundation use, which for example, all the great things about meta transactions, collaboration, those are the things that Arcana are going to use. So yeah, like compared to a comma, like Arcana is much, much more makes sense for, for us to bring and work together with the foundation. So that was it. So that's why right now Arcana natively built on near. Is which is like top 10 active contracts and active users. Congratulations. So I've noticed that's pretty good fractions from the team. It, it only took us two months actually to go from zero to 100k new wallets, which is something that near foundation likes. It is one of the. This may be improper, but they probably got hard looking at it. <laughs> that's a really good decision to make because in an early stage ecosystem, when there may not be as many users or transactions, 
being a top 10 contract may not be super hard, especially depending on the time frame that you use. Yeah. I think I told you last week that there was a time when Metapool was a top 10 contract. Yeah, and it was actually a very bad sign because Metapool is a liquid staking contract. You don't really do much that often. By the way, I hope that we're able to remove most of it with the <laughs> software. But there was a podcast early days that I recorded in Mexico. And I didn't realize that the microphone was very sensitive. And I basically had two hours of footage of Mexico City traffic. So if you're a long-term listener, <laughs> we're collecting traffic from around the world. If you're able to listen to the traffic, feel special, feel blessed. This is Jakarta, baby. Okay. Let's keep going. Okay. One question. Because I'm curious. I am a strong believer in opportunity. I'll take anything that crops my paths. It's there. You take it. At the moment, is Arcana in its Web2 format sustainable? Are you bootstrapping in its current form? Like, where is it at? Would you say it's a startup? Whatever. And then the follow-up question would be, what sort of resources would you need or expect for an Arcana to come on chain or whether you need resources at all? Like, hypothetically, if you wanted to go ahead with it in a particular chain that suits your interests or your needs, but there weren't support from foundations at the time, at the moment, uh, would you still do it? Or, or in what circumstances would you consider doing it? Akoma. Akoma. Arcana is already on chain. So Akoma, right. yes, Akoma. So, so, the comics so, one. So the two questions is for Akoma, not Arcana, right? Correct. As you mentioned, Arcana. I fucked it up. <laughs> this is where I edit. The funny thing is that Artemis sometimes also mess it up because the name Arcana with A. So yeah. If so, I had to give you any illustration of both names in my head, it's just one bit K. That's a placeholder. A call. Can, okay. So yeah. So for Parcoma, what's the first question? What does it take? Is, it, is it sustainable right? now? It, it's, uh, I'll say it's sustainable. Uh, it's sustainable because like there are a lot of uh, companies, like digital comic companies, they made a lot of mines. So I do think it's, it's sustainable and we just need to get a lot bigger market share, for example, in South Asia. So sustainability, uh, yes, it can be sustainable. Like for example, Webtoon, the biggest digital comic, they made hundred million a year. Yeah. So that's the number that, let's say we take 1%, that's 1 million a year. So that's, yeah, good. we go big. We're going to take 69%. Yeah, that's good. All right. So that is that hundred million a year in sales or like the estimated value of the IP? Do they oh, issue? That's in sales. Comic sales. Holy shit. That's big. That's and big. is that market? Regional, like comics oh, are no, language specific, it's global. It's global, but only Webtoon. Webtoon is just like one company, not including the, the, the other companies. Like we have Billy Billy, we have, what else? We have, we have Suecia, like the, 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 the manga comics, whatever. So, so it's just one company, but international uh, sales. I have never been too much into comics, mm -hmm. but in, pardon me. But it is a thing. <laughs> Oh, I know. I shouldn't be saying this, but yeah, my family, when I say my family, I mean like my extended family, all share or used to share one Netflix password and my cousins used to watch a lot of manga. Okay. And I think that sometimes they just didn't switch the username and they would fuck up my mom's algorithm. <laughs> and she's like, I don't know what's wrong with these kids. Like they watch all this like weird Japanese shit. And I was like, mom, that's actually really popular. I don't know what it is either, but it's actually really popular. And for context, these people live in Venezuela. Yeah. So it's a very interesting global phenomenon. That's one thing that I, I like about comic, like big comic fans. I also like, I, I love Japanese manga, whatever it is. But then like, is, is there a porn version? Is it hentai? Or like in, in a coma? 
uh, in, in Japanese culture. Yeah, and they do have the 18 plus contents. Okay. Also sneaky. The, yeah. Sneaky. Do you have that in a coma? No, we don't have it. Bro, that's how we double the valuation. Actually, like, like my co-founder, Afik, my co-founder, Afik, like he is the one that lit Komano and he's actually like with me discussing whether it is something that might work in this market because it could double our sales or revenue like that fast. What are the considerations we use at a very superficial level? I know that Indonesia is a Muslim country, mm-hmm. so it's much more conservative. There are probably some local considerations. Mm-hmm. And I wonder how that plays in when trying to grow a company that may have like global, global ambition. Presence, yeah. Are most of your users in Indonesia at the moment? Right now, yeah. Right now, like 95% of our users is in Indonesian, but we're wanting to scale to at least such Asia. So we do have some users in Malaysia because we like, share the same culture, share the same language. Not really, but yeah. Same religions, same right? I'm not sure yeah. that's going to be a plus or a minus for yeah. the porn section. But then, yeah, the, the good thing about Comic is that it could be distributed globally. Just like NFTs, just like WebPlays, which scales globally since day one. So I do think the comic and WebPlay, it might be one of the best combination to like on audiences. I agree. But I wonder whether we're seeing it from the same angle. Because I think I'm coming at it from like the technology and maybe some of the more niche, not niche, cliche things that people talk about when they think about Web3. And I'd like to get your perspective from a more like real user and consumer of, of comics, the couple of things that I'm interested in would be what sort of artist or author do you have at the moment? Are you guys using like existing brands or series and you just help distribute them? Or is a coma being developed as a platform for new talent to publish your work, to be discovered, new ways of engaging with the audience? What sort of the angle that you guys are taking and maybe even like, how does it differentiate with other comics in Web2? Yeah, we're planning to get licensed comics, like titles and licensing to Coma and put it, for example, to local language, but that's still a plan. We haven't really done any of it. So right now, most of the comics in Coma is actually an original comic. So mm-hmm. sometimes the authors, sometimes not really well-known authors, and then we onboarded them, we worked with them and they publish something on a comma. Right now, like the focus of a comma is to satisfy the needs of, not really the needs, but the, what the users want, which like a lot of the Indonesian, they want to see a lot more Indonesian comic. That's the coolest thing about, about comma is that we really support like Indonesian comic and actually and then a lot of like top comics here in a comma, they do have the set of Indonesian culture boiled inside it. For example, the top, the number one comic on a comma, it is called Ma. It is about, it is about a, it is an action comic where the, like the main characters can be friend with local ghosts. We have local ghosts here and then they'll, and, and then they fight with another local ghost. So that's with like every country has ghosts. Yeah. Ghosts. Ghosts. And then that's what we embrace from, like, all right. So yeah, like local Indonesians, user obviously, they love seeing this type of stuff where they also, see a lot of, yeah, we have a lot of like diverse range of ghosts, which is where it's getting, but yet the, the authors draw it. Can you tell me a ghost story? Mm-hmm. Like a local ghost story? I'll let, let you... me just show you. Oh shit. Yeah. So yeah, like anybody can just download it. So this is actually the, the number one comic. Let me show you. Where is it? 
Oh, looks dope. So yeah, this is, you guys can see. So this is, we call it red kunmera or I don't like red kunti. So it's supposed to be very scary. Like the top. So we have a lot of this woman ghost and, and red kuntilanak is the top. It's the, it's the scariest thing. I'm really scared actually. And that's one. So I think that's pretty good. Like, like the authors. Can... How does the legend go? Because she looks like she's really fucking up this guy real bad. Yeah. <laughs> And I have another ghost, which is very cool, right? So this, I don't know how to um, explain it, but this ghost. This was pretty scary, actually. Yeah, so, so, so this ghost is actually, so there's this legend in Indonesia that if you want to have a lot of customers going into your, like, stall, like, food stall, so you need to hire, not really hire, but you need to go to the smart guy, smart people, ask him to... To hire a ghost to what is it like? Ghost for hire. Ghost, yeah. I, I don't know how to say it in in, in English, but in right. Indonesia we call it like Paris. But I don't like if we have like English like, language. But overall, like, you, like you renting, hire. leasing, borrowing. Not yeah, not really like commanding. Yeah, yeah, you technically hire the ghost to make sure that there are hurt. a lot of people to go into your office and make your food become. Delicious. Is it, and the legend said that if, if you eat the food at place at the end restaurant and it tastes good, and then if you bring it back to your home and it tastes bland, it tastes bad, then it means that the restaurant hired the ghost. So that's the legend. And that's the type of stuff that you might see in, in Atma. Bro, that's fucked up. Yeah. That restaurant we went to on Friday. Have you taken that food home? Heaven, actually. Have you got lunch? We have to test this shit out. <laughs> I've got a little kitchen in my hotel. Oh, that's fucked up. Because th- these are like fun ghost stories. Yeah. Uh-huh. These sound like something you would watch in a comic. Because mm-hmm. we, we've got some ghost stories, like legends in mm-hmm. Venezuela. But I think they're more on the scary side. I don't know. Maybe I was a kid when I heard them. I was more traumatized than entertained. This one just sounds fun. Yeah, because that's the beauty of this, this Atma comic. Because uh, like she can make this... Like this set of ghosts, like it's actually, it, can, can you show me the image again? Because I think the ghost is at the restaurant, yeah? Yeah. Hopefully I can watch. It's amazing. Oh. It. All right. So oh my is. God. Yeah. So, so you can see this. What is so it? Yum, yum, motherfucker. So he's eating his food. Yum. And turns out the food, the spice is coming from this. Yeah. Oh, you don't like your food? Yeah. You don't like your food? This is wild. I love it. Okay, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to run to the bathroom and then I'm going to Google how to stop this fucking camera from moving. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, we'll be just one minute. We are so accomplished. <laughs> that was the most productive toilet break I've ever had. <laughs> Thank you, Ricky. Your engineering prowess is really coming through. Yeah. To the people, to the people watching on YouTube, I apologize. We spent the first 30 minutes with a bouncing camera. It was like a half frame cutting through my nose. We figured out how to disable that. And now there is both of us in the same frame. Magic. Before that, I asked you to tell me the story of some scary ghosts about a coma. And yeah, I had some nightmares on my way to the toilet. It's pretty rad. I wish you told me about the ghosts and the restaurants beforehand. <laughs> because is that like a like an Indonesia-wide thing or yeah. region-specific? No, no, it's Indonesia-wide thing. Like a lot of Indonesia knows this uh, legend and culture. Bro, we gotta create a Web three application where you go to a restaurant, you snap a photo of the food, 
you taste it, and then you rank it. Delicious, not delicious. Then you take it home, you snap a photo of the food again, and with your geolocation, like you must be not at the restaurant, and then you report back. Delicious, not delicious. And then we can have a crowdsourced, global, decentralized, democratized Ghostbusters. <laughs> yeah. That's a good idea. That's the top shit. I know a few people that would come to Indonesia just to eat delicious food and chase ghosts. I have so many questions. I'm, I'm going to have to, to buy the, the comic on a coma. Like, how much should we pay these ghosts? Is there like a restaurant ghost union? <laughs> so for people that like the story, do they pay for it in a coma directly? Yeah. So they, they need to top up. They need to get our in-app currency. They can use Google Pay and also Apple Pay. They can use any sort of like local current local payment as well. And then they'll get their mantra, which is our in-app currency, and they can purchase all the comics with mantra. So that's how easy it is to, to purchase comics chapters on the coma. How are the fees from Apple and Google in Indonesia? It's still bad. We take 30% cut. Holy shit. Yeah, so if you're selling digital items, including comics, digital comics, they take 30% cut of any tales that you have. But but I think you need to make at least $5,000 a month, and then the, these rules will be quite you. If it's less than 5000 then I don't think they'll take any. But still, like when you grow bigger than 30% is something, like that's a third of your sales. If you think about it. Yeah, it's a lot. I'm not the best at maths, but there's somebody paying more than 30% in tax right now. Yeah. I know, I'm not doing a Okay, that's wild. No, because I, I was trying to think of Web3 and the promise of simpler, faster, cheaper payments, especially peer-to-peer. That's the cliche. And then you've got the many different markets. You've got within the West, and then you've got like remittances. But another one that's interesting is payment railways within developing countries. Because I know that in some contexts, yeah, some people may not have bank accounts in other places, yeah. whatever, they don't accept cards. I had a really bizarre experience. I went to a laundromat and it was actually the opposite. These people must be part of some uh, new world order shit. They went cashless. Cashless, yeah. Not only did they go cashless, but they didn't accept international cards. So they accepted cash with a 25% premium. Wow, where is it? Shit. Piece of shit laundromat in, in Menteng. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I guess that's how they fucked foreigners up. But I actually told the lady, like, hey, can I give you the cash and you do the payment with, like, your bank account? <laughs> and she said, well, I'll take the cash, but it's too yeah. fair, though. It was, like, okay. 30000 And they charged me 40000 in cash. Okay, yeah. We're talking, like, $4 that you do. But it's still 25% for using yeah. cash. Normally, it's the other way around, but they, they charge more for paying with cart. Shifting gears slightly. A coma. Lots of users. Arcana. Also, a lot of users. So we combine it and we have 250-ish. Yeah. On this army of people, which if you're watching at home, they're all paid ghosts. They're all paid ghosts. I don't know how much Ricky has in his payroll, but the food here is delicious. How many of your workforce, what's the split like between France, Acoma, Arcana, side projects when quick nudge nudge actually for for parts you know we are not currently doing much so it's just like in maintenance mode making sure that it works doesn't have any bugs and it, it is fast and that's for the, the marketplace and that's for Ooh. the NFT place and then 
for a coma, it was a small team back then, only eight people. But right now, because all the fractions and everything, it grows to maybe how on workforce of 15 people is in a coma. And Andres is working on our coma. So that's how we split it. So if we put it in a percentage, then maybe 50% is in a coma, maybe 30% is in Arcana, and the rest 20% is jungling, marketplace, Arcana, and commas. Interesting. That makes sense. Because I've been following Paras. No one knows how to pronounce it, by the way, Paras. And yeah, maybe I didn't know if it was in maintenance mode, but it didn't make sense to have these many people. Yeah. I was like wondering, where are they dying? <laughs> That's why I thought that maybe you were the people scamming others, but no. Yeah. So we've established you're not doing something. Good. I'm wondering, are there any lessons from the Paris era? Could be anything, could be engineering, launching a token, just like NFTs in general. What leads to the decision? You touched on it, but if they're ready to split off into a coma and have yeah. the comics as a product as opposed to the marketplace. I learned a lot for the last two or three years running marketplace, running Paris. So it's actually my first like real startups that do well like i and trying to make some kind of like startup some even management kind of thing like i do a lot of stuff back in my college years up until now but then paris is the one that really makes it so yeah i learned a lot as a first time founders for signups i learned a lot of things that i'm all very happy to share with first of all i do talk also with other founders including luke one that organized pinefest asian also the one of the founders of pinefest i think which one of which, which one of the biggest crypto media here in indonesia like talk a lot with him, also some other founders as well. I think what, what you know what, if I could summarize like all the things, all the chats, all the things that I've been talking with all these founders that we need cash flow. As a business, cash flow is the king. And we need to make sure that we have it in a monthly basis or in quarterly basis that people are paying us for our products. At first I thought that okay, lamps, for example, is ideal and let's apply for another five years, for another ten years. One sales for three years or five years. I don't think that's sustainable and that, like I think all the founders also equal me that we need to find sustainable revenue, make sure that we could survive, we could be a sustainable business. So for us, Boyful Web3 is is obviously our main goal, like Boyful Web3 and then onboarding all people to the uh, to web three industries. But I think that's also that's naive for Everyone to say that, okay, let's go full Web3 and on more all these normies, the Web3, have them create their own wallets, private and whatnot. So I think we need to have a transition period where we, can, we need to onboard them throughout this Web2.5 strategy. That's what, that's how I see it. Like that, that's the strategy of product right now. I don't think people will create their own wallets, save their own private keys right now, especially in the bear market. The, the bear market kids really hard, so, which means that even the crypto natives are leaving the crypto, like they just wait for the next bull run, the next halving or whatever it is. So if the crypto natives are leaving, then who's going to do something on chain? I think that's the problem for all of us. It goes. It goes, right? We need to... Bro, we've got to find out how to give these motherfuckers <laughs> an I am human. <gasps> Discrimination. God. <laughs> Can we say, I don't know, do they have face? I don't think they have. But we're going to look into yeah. it. No, that's a, that's a really interesting take because anyone will tell you that web for web three sake, mm -hmm. to quote Dolores Umbridge, progress for progress sake is not going to be well received at Hogwarts. Web three for web three sake doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And that to me was why a lot of NFT, a lot of the things that gets a lot of traction on Twitter never make sense. 
I'm very cynical this day. So it's definitely somebody trying to sell you something short yeah. term. It's just lacking all the logical steps, the real product. Yeah. What does this do? And who's going to use it? So I, I think that navigating that dance between is it Web3 or is it a good product is where the challenge is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm wondering how much did you guys feel with Paras at the time that you were no longer focused internally on growing a product or building your vision and that you were suddenly more almost like enslaved to these crazy NFT people or communities and their vision or their expectations. And for context, we launched Misfits for PSP yeah. on, on Near. And we did have the experience. It was very weird to be the first one. We launched before there was much of the NFT culture. And then there was an expectation for us to basically copy paste what other NFT collections were doing Uh in other ecosystems. And that was never really our vision or our intention. So it was really hard uh, for me and Oli to try to like reconcile that community Uh expectation to what we're actually doing in the ecosystem. And I'm wondering uh, if that may have been an element that says, hey, it's just easier to leave Paras on the side and to have something unrelated here where we can still have our creative freedom and our vision for the product. Oh, I think, so I think that's how you, that's how you set your vision as, as a company. So like I mentioned earlier, Paras, our end goal is to expand the end game of NFTs. Means that we don't want NFTs to be just PFTs to be digital art. We want NFTs to be just for a lot of different things, for examples. On a comma, let's say all the chapters will be NFTs, then it's going to be very cool, right? It could be a collectible thing, just like the comic book collectibles type of things. For Arcana, for Arcana all the memberships are actually NFTs. You seen it on chain. I've so, seen it. There's so, a lot of them. So, so actually everything that we do here for, for our ecosystem, for us, it's all part of the NFT thing. And we want to expand NFTs to not just as what it would look like in the marketplace. We want NFTs to be a lot of different things. And it means that if the, every particles, every like different uh, industry has their own way to to be reached out to. For example, the comic industry, the pop culture industry, then we need to have mobile apps ready because they don't use, they don't read comic in, in desktop. They read comic in, in mobile apps. Like a lot of them, they read it on mobile apps. So we need to make sure that they have the mobile apps and for, for creating mobile apps, it's hard for us to put a lot of cryptos on it because we have the App Store, we have the Play Store, all these things. Okay, let, we can obviously going step by step, making a 2.5, 2.8, and then land on Web3. I don't know if that, if that thing, but that's how I see us at Sparse as a company to go forward. We still has this big and grand visions of expanding the Dolphin NFTs. So it does a bit to stop at NFT marketplace. At NFT marketplace, you cannot stop there because it doesn't expand the endgame of NFTs, which is our vision. So one way, especially in the better market, one way that we can shape our vision is to, to expand it through a lot of different categories. Or particles. That's it. So only That's one thing. I'm wondering about that sense of identity. It's like Paraz is your baby. Yeah, with so, has branded T-shirts well, and, sh- and yeah. chairs. Like, uh-huh. so I think that's that's the hardest one. Then, huh? A bit confused. Like, for example, like a lot of people, especially in Indonesia, they know Paras. They know Paras. They they know that like we we're builders here in Indonesia and create a product internationally, globally. 
And a lot of people also in the Nier ecosystem, they know Paras as an NFT marketplace, not just in the Nier ecosystem, but also Solana, in the chain, perhaps some of them, if they that they are like trap natives, possibly they've used Nier at a certain point and they use Paras as the main NFT marketplace. So right now, I think we are currently processing our like we want people to know. So Paras will stay at an NFT marketplace, but then we have this groups, which we call East, which is the name of the building. So we have the holding, which is called East Blue, and one of the products of East Blue is Paras, which is the marketplace. And then all the other products is actually part of the East Blue, not part of Paras and the marketplace. In the next couple of months, we are going to introduce you East Blue as an ecosystem. So it has Paras, it has Argana, it has Coma. If we like combine all the numbers, we have 300, 400 users for 300, 400, 400,000 users. So that's the, that's a plan that I'm finally going to work on to see like, how can we, how can we let the people know that, okay, Paras is an empty marketplace and then Paras, Paras is currently doing this like holding company type of things where they built a lot of cool stuff, which is still currently in the NFT space. The holding company is good for the lawyers and for the SEC when they come knocking. Yeah. From the end user perspective, I guess it doesn't really matter, although to me, what it signals is that you're building an empire, which links slightly with something that I wanted to ask, cash flow. Uh-huh. Very hard. But, and this is with Metapool, because our workforce is in Mexico, Argentina, Venezuela. Metapool is able to operate in a very lean, very agile, very cost-effective, mm-hmm. compared to what an engineer would get paid in the US yeah. or even in Europe. We've got really good powered. We've been investing a lot in training engineers in that region. And it's something that actually paints a very bullish profile for that region because people can actually do a lot. Yeah. They're still hungry to build things and have their place in the world, but also they can live very comfortably with yeah. what uh-huh. would be a very modest salary. So I'm thinking how you see that in Indonesia in terms of having an advantage when it comes to building, because you're able to have perhaps a larger team with competitors. And I'm wondering if you would even extend that to like a global positioning. Say you could even bootstrap, hey, we're going to have 20, 30% of our workforce do contract work for other people. Yeah. And we can invoice them at a global rate. And that way, Inc. Yeah. Empire. Uh-huh. And that was called Inc. Blue. East Blue. It's called East Blue. East, like East, it's compass, like East, East, West, North, East. <laughs> yeah. East Blue, of course, it's written in the building. Yeah, it's written in the building. We shouldn't right? say that. We're going to come and get kidnapped. East Blue. Okay. Yeah. So you can have East Blue uh-huh. homemade products. Yeah. Almost like a product lab. And then you can have East Blue consulting or something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. Uh, you're already looking into it. Yeah. Well, we're actually talking for a lot of people, a lot of companies, a lot of... Next uh, time I come, I want to see... Two engineers per desk, 24-7, they can take turns. So yeah, that's actually one of the plans. We have a very like small turret. We have people here in in forest and then like our turret is not as big as you might think. So that's how we can fill. Is it still five digits? Five digits? What is it? Five digits? Yes. Yeah. More than 10, less than 100. Yeah. Yeah, more than So I think that's the number. That's our monthly bumming. That's pretty good. 
pretty good. An American company with 30 people nah. and a five-digit brand rate? No, no. Not going to happen. So yeah, that's, that's the, the advantage of us here living in Indonesia, building global product. Like I mentioned, we have our own like product lab. So we did like we have, it's me and my lead engineers. We usually research a lot of stuff. We try to join some so that we have this deadline. We need to finish the product by a week or two and then see how it goes from there. So that's actually how our kind of started. It's just me code by myself, like for a week or two, my lead engineers, and then, okay. Push it out. Let's put some like maybe thousand dollars for marketing purposes and see if it works. If it works, like, let's talk to some of this guy. Let's do this stuff. And right now we have hundred thousand users for our account. So that's amazing how I think it's global operate. So we have our like product research lab. And then we also have our media team is currently reaching out to a lot of different like companies, projects that want to work with us, giving them solutions. So we call it part of solutions, but I don't know if we should. Just like easy solutions, but I do think, but right now it is partner solution. We call it partner solution. It's basically a, a dev shop. You know what, whatever you need, want us, we can build it, whatever you need, then we can pay it for you. But it are capable of doing that. You're taking investors? That's into some. I am a small fish, huh? but I'll invest. Oh, Interesting. Uh, That's the pitch that you want to hear. What gives you a competitive advantage? You've got the experience, you've got your own project, so you're hedged, skin yeah. in the game. And then you've got the ability to export something that is extremely valuable. Yeah. At a very reasonable, it gives a competitive yeah. edge. I'm going to run and get the charger, but when I get back, like to learn more before we jump on our counter about your experience building that local team. For context, Indonesia is a very young country. It's almost the size of the United States, 300 million people. So it's a huge market. Lots of young people. Yeah. What has been your experience in finding engineers, training them? And in general, is it a formula that could be replicated? If we had to double the the count size, the head size, the head count. If we had to double the head count of Paras, because we're investing, big nudge, nudge. How do we go about recruiting more top talent and expanding the empire? East Blue, back in a minute. Building level thing here in Indonesia. How is it? I, I, it, it's, it's challenging to be sure, especially if you're going to hire. But, well, the funny thing is that it's a lot harder to find a good BD slash marketing people that can go internationally because we are web too, right? We need, to, we need to reach out to all these global audiences. And it's harder to find BD or marketers that could scale their strategies globally. That's a lot harder than finding an engineer. That's, yeah. that's interesting. That's actually... I know that there's a dynamic in Europe. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of dev shops, Poland, Ukraine, like... Eastern Europe is in general a lot more technical and yeah, it's very uh, competitive, but normally you see a pairing between say a dev shop in Poland uh-huh. and the marketing team in and the UK. In so uh, I'm wondering, we would have the devs here and the marketing team in Australia, the global stuff. I think that's a good idea. Actually, it's so yeah. bad. It's uh-huh. uh, so I think that's from my experience, that's the hardest part. And to scale the business development in sales marketing to global levels, that's a lot harder than scaling like an engineer team locally to be to make a global product. It, what are the challenges there? Is it language? Is it just understanding uh, the vision? Yeah, yeah. So, global. So, so I think it's it's a lot more than that. So first of all, obviously the language. So that one thing. But the other thing is that it is the culture, right? Every country is like. That's what DD people, marketing, we, we, we basically talk to other people within different cultures. Like for example, if you talk to Italian, then you 
But it is like you cannot, you cannot speak this way. You need to have this introduction first and then the, they'll be if talking to the to, to Korean, then it is, it is not polite for you to say this type of stuff. So you have to fly to Korea and yeah. get drunk. Oh, maybe. Yeah. So, 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 so I think that's the hardest part of doing marketing and be the think locally and scale it global level. So I think we need to have each people in different regions to handle that. But do you find that it's a lack of exposure and perhaps understanding with those foreign cultures mm-hmm. or is there something about Indonesian culture in general that makes it harder? To connect, like once again, maybe it's huh. more conservative, maybe it's less um, not really hierarchical. Not really. I think it's just it's just us of like of like um, previous interactions, like of previous interaction with all yeah. these like foreign entities, this, yeah, foreign people, foreign entities, bro. So that's for the the billion marketing teams, but then it's actually not as hard as I thought. Building an engineering team here, local in Indonesia, build like a product that could scale very well globally, because. First of all, Web3 is new, means that even if you are a senior engineer, if you have 15, 10, 15 years of experience, it doesn't matter. You have zero knowledge in Web3. Means that we don't need to hire senior level engineer, right? We just need maybe one or two senior level engineer that know how to deploy stuff, that know to do how to run stuff. And the other is that is just fresh graduate with zero knowledge on, on Web3 because everybody has the knowledge in web development. So that's how we just, that's basically the typical engineer that we are going to hire first graduate and second step. Uh, we have this engineering test, which like usually we, for example, we have a hundred uh, people applying for the jobs. We send them emails to the, to the distance for a week or two weeks. And usually we only have maybe 2%, 3% response rate from really? email. So it so means that people that really want to work here in us that like they be genuinely interested in learning and building stuff. So that's why I think I also talked to Edward from uh, Meteor Wallet. Like they, like they see us as, as a team where we could ship really fast, work with a lot of different products at once. And I think that's the, the advantage of us for us. Like we hire like good engineers that want to learn fast, that could learn fast and that they could also ship really fast. That's, that's how we hire engineers. We give them like tests with near smart contracts. If they could learn Rust in a week or two, means that they are a very good engineer. Oh, they can do anything. Yeah. It's taken me like six weeks now to learn the basics of CSS. And <laughs> I just came, I won't be deploying shit in July soon, but last question. I mean, yeah, I'll be having Edward soon. We. In one of the original DAO, rest in peace, meetings recently, Hai from Vietnam said uh-huh. the context was that the foundation is shifting focus towards onboarding developers to the ecosystem. I mean, her body actually. Uh, I some alpha. <laughs> and the feedback that Hai gave is that they onboarded some developers, could be you through the hackathons, what it is. hackathons but also the Learn Near Club okay. pathways. Uh-huh. And the challenge that they have is that if there's no work for them, or something to do, that. then they leave the ecosystem. So I'm uh, I'm going to invest in East Blue first, and then I'm going to advocate very strongly to the foundation. We need to find a way. Once again, what is our moat, and like what is our competitive advantage? And I think that if we can identify those pockets where we can get good engineers mm-hmm. at a reasonable cost, and I'd say with no idea how much an engineer costs in Indonesia, but a good engineer for less than two thousand US a month for this deal. 
if we can get them in Argentina, in Indonesia, in Vietnam, there should be a plan with the foundation, with the NDC, with this successful team like Metapool, Paras, anyone in Vietnam that is able to literally just like passively recruit and have them almost like on standby. You run a product lab yeah. and there's a hackathon. Pair up the hackathon winners with these engineers. Yeah. Dude, there's a thing of Web 2.5 partnerships. Somebody has to build all that shit. Like, yeah. we need to find a way to grow the ecosystem of engineers. And it's a two-sided marketplace that is actually quite hard to connect. <laughs> when, somebody, hard. Yeah. when somebody has the money to spend, there's <laughs> yeah. no one here to work. And if there's people here to work, then there's no money to spend. spend. And I think that's going to be yeah. the biggest challenge of the bear market. Mm -hmm. And I think what the foundation is allegedly shifted focus to developers because we need to build our way out of the bear. Yeah, well, it, it's pretty hard to say that because especially in the bear market, we don't really have a lot of projects, a lot of projects that want to hire. Like most of them actually lay off some of their employees. So it's hard. But then at the same time, we need to build the, like the developers ecosystem in the bear market because when bull market happens, that obviously 100%, we will need that engineers as much as we want. I disagree with you. And I was going to ask before mm -hmm. whether your perception that getting engineers is easier than getting marketing or BD is because you're a technical founder. Yeah. Engineers <laughs> speak machine language and you speak machine language and everyone speaks machine and you don't care about the, yeah. the human world and Maybe. fuck the traffic. My experience is obviously the opposite. It's usually easier to find people with ideas and ambition. Perhaps not easier to find them, but for me, it's most common to meet people that are held back because they don't have the engineering resources. For instance, I'll share some of the vision that I have for this giant hub, which I may as well just move to Jakarta, and we do it here. I want to build a product lab where we can have engineers and have small projects and validation. For instance, right now, bus components. Oh, yeah. I want to be, I think I, I built Afik at the event in Valley. I see the blockchain operating system as a no code for Web3. I want to go to Bubble. I want to go to Glide. I want to go to several of the well-established no code solutions out there. And the most are pretty advanced these days because I used to build stuff with 2019, like before COVID, and basically identify. Things like Glide, I really liked because they identify all the basic and reusable front-end components, and you basically just match with the data which you can have with your database or you can pull from somewhere, like an API, and you literally just tell it how to display it. So for instance, if you look at like a menu section, you could display tiles, you could display a list with an image, it could be like a numbered list, and it just really increases the speed of creating basic applications. So I would try to identify like all the components that are needed to create like basic stuff in Web3. We can categorize it by level of complexity, by use case, by vertical. To me, there's no shortage of workload that we could be given talented engineering teams. It's just a matter of, okay, if somebody has to have the vision to identify what needs to be built, which ironically may not always be engineers. And then somebody needs to have the talent. And perhaps most importantly, someone has to pay for that shit. So I can create the list, you bring the engineers, and we get Max from DevHub to give us money. Let's, let's do it. And I, I already... I'm down. I'm down. <laughs> I know you have a room downstairs. I'm moving to Jakarta. <laughs> no, it's a quick question on the building a team. I'm always fascinated by co-founder stories. Because I know that you're getting married in November. I'm uh, going to wait for my invite quietly. 
But also they say that co-founders are like relationships. There needs yeah. to be a lot of uh, stuff happening in there. How did you meet Afik? We were high school friends. High school friends. We play a lot of Dota. Of course. Huge Dota. We play a lot of Dota in our high school uh, years. And then we, we joined some competitions even though like we lost a lot of them because like we are the only high schoolers, like all of them usually like, like local pros. 30 like, year old that have never left their house. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's how like. I basically um, wanted it Afnik, um, through this, like all the games that we, we played all together. And also like our high school, we have one year boarding process. So for the first year, it's going to be, we need to live in a boarding house, like all of us. So that's how I, how old? One year, for one, how old am I back then? How old were you at the time? Yeah. I was, I was, it was nine years ago. So I think would it be like it towards the end of high school? No, it's like only high school. Okay. 15, 15, I think. Yeah, maybe 15. Yeah, so, so, so that's how I, like, I really, like, I really bought it with a fake, play a lot of games. And that's how we, we kept the, I would say, the connection, the relation between, like, me and Afik. But then college happens. Afik went to this English literature major. Really? Yeah. Afik went to English literature because, like, he loves, what is it, like, theater, he loves like, Shakespeare. Shakespeare, yeah. yeah. That's, that's one of the things that he... You mentioned, but, but, but I don't really know who he is, but yeah, but, but they're very tragic. Yeah. Uh, it's, so, uh, they're all like tragic stories. Tragic story, right? Okay. Yeah. So, so Romeo and Juliet, Romeo they and Juliet. all end up dead. Like, a fake reads all the scripts, like fifties for this script. Like he likes reading it. That's, that's his thing. And then I went to a computer science major and we are we actually study at different cities, basically one thing that Connects us when we were in college is Dota. We'll be sometimes playing together online. And then, yeah, fast forward. Actually, I, I got a job here in Jakarta. And I think I'll still work in Jakarta. We had to catch up with him. And back then, I was going to start at Paras. Back then, Paras, it was social media. I don't know if you heard the story, but Paras was in social media in the early days. No. So it is a decentralized social media playing to create one, a decentralized social media. So I just... As I want to, I want to have this video marketing campaign for my decentralized social media. Cause I think he, I think he's not big of an item, but he used to play some theater and whatnot. So he sometimes also create the short video, like short movies on YouTube. Really? Yeah. Sometimes they just to vlogging. Are they good? I think, yeah, it's, it's quite good. I'll say if you want, if you can help me get this lot of like marketing campaigns for my like decentralized social media. And he's down, but that's actually the start how I work together, like with the fake. It was 2021, like January, January 2021. So we made the campaign and then basically do a, a weekly catch up with things and told him that, okay, okay I, I really like this video. We like to be my founder and he, he's down. And that's how everything started from Delta. And right now we are working together and building Paras. And right now I think that's, he has this big kill labs. Literature, including comics, that's also one reason why it takes good thing and a fix. So you're probably going to handle the comic side. He'll, you lead the comic side and everything else it's on me. So that's right now, I'll take, he leads comma, the, the comic side and me, I handle basically other things, other paras, marketplace, anything else. Yeah. That's, that's hilarious. I like that you bring up the boarding house. Yeah. Because. I have always had this theory since I was at university, not quite boarding house, but we've got first year camps. <laughs> so the first year students go away for the weekend okay. to a campsite. And uh, 
it's mostly a lot of drinking and crazy shit, but it's just amazing how having people yeah. live together, even for a short amount of time, really creates strong bonds. Yeah. You get to know people at a different level and it really makes a difference for people later on to go through the university journey. And I'm a big fan of hacker houses. Uh -huh. I, I think that in a global decentralized community, especially now that we're going through a bear market, which sucked up, it's all about the people. When you wake up and you're like, oh, does this make sense? Should I go get a job? This is good. shit. I'm eating out of a tuna can. The people that you meet, not only does it make it more likely to stay or keep going, you can actually meet people to work with and collaborate. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm a big fan of hacker houses. Actually, uh, in the last podcast with Mike Purvis, okay. we talked about getting a castle. Could be just a big house, but oh. I don't know why I said a castle in France or something. <laughs> And do it like a standalone hacker house. Because at the moment, all the hacker houses are like adjacent to conferences yeah. or like other events. And let's get two weeks. I'd say longer, but I know people are busy. Let's say two weeks a year, make it really competitive. And we get like elite builders in there. Ilya, Eugene, like by application, you can bring uh -huh. your idea or you can work on an existing project, mm -hmm. but really have that sense of collaboration, like disconnected from the world, just mm -hmm. like hands down building. It's funny that I mentioned this utopian dreams of a castle in Burgundy because I know that your developers actually do yeah. have that already. Yeah. But that actually, yeah, like I totally agree with you that having people live together, it must from the bonds and it like everybody just do the same thing. Like they do have same kind of like lifestyle because they obviously live together. So yeah, so we actually like rent a small house in front of the office. That's actually, we call it Dev House. That's our Dev House. In the early days, we 100% make sure that all the new hire, like they need to go to that house every single day. So it's not just Tuesday, Wednesday, it's every day they need to go there for the first three months at least. So they can live there, but if not, then they can just find like other places nearby to rent and then just go there every single day. And actually, in the old days, there are a lot of people that lives there. I think eight people. Yeah. All the engineers, all of the engineers are living at the dev house. And I think that's how they actually can be so close and they can learn so fast. Because all their friends, like every single day, they talk about engineering. They talk about code. They talk about their cooking. They're taking yeah, a shit. They're so every that, time. So that's their life. So I think, yeah, if you and Mike have this ideas of creating a cattle for Hackers are down for it. It could be in our office. You can start from there. It could be also in, I don't know. To be honest, I think I'm getting old. And I look more and more fondly towards the days when I was young and beautiful. Uh -huh. But summer camps. Dude, summer I camp. honestly love to have a one-week sprint where we literally have sleeping bags on the yeah. floor here. We're hacking on this side, sleeping bags over there, a bunch of pizza boxes and whatnot outside. That's the hustle that I like. Yeah. I understand that at some point, some HR person may say, oh, it's exploitation. But no, to me, he's you self-selecting to a group of people that are uh -huh. passionate about something and they really just want to build shit. Sure, you hang out and you learn and you grow. That's a big part of it. I have to say that because I don't actually feel like yeah. I'm there for the ideation. But yeah, it's that sense of community. And I'd like to get your thoughts on how can we reconcile that benefit of being in person and creating that local or global community with the now normal trend? And some people may argue 
growing trend of working fully remote. Okay. I'm not a total believer at I know, 100% remote work. I don't think it, it's good both for the company and also for the, for the employee as well. So I think 100% total remote work would disconnect you with the rest of your teams means that you're like, you only live by yourself. You, you don't have any people to talk with unless you have like families that might work. But for young people like us, I do think that you need to build the relation, the connection, because I know like maybe five years, 10 years later, you might not be an engineer. You might be doing some business with your friends in the office. And that wouldn't happen if you are not going in person in the office. Yeah. Because it's hard to bond with somebody just 100% remotely. It could happen. It could work, but it's like totally different. Like for example, with AVB, like we had a lot of like meetings, discussions online, but then when we meet in person, it's just, it hits differently. We just, okay, this real quick, like yeah. I really want to do a lot of things with him. Yeah, I, I agree. There's something about the short lived experience that we've had with fully remote work. Never combined with it being basically compulsory during COVID. Because I agree with you. If you extend the timelines, you start to identify all the weaknesses. I've heard VCs say that remote work, fully remote work may be fine mm -hmm. in large established companies because everyone already knows what they have to do. Yeah. Or maybe for like senior employees because they know what they have to do sure. and they're just going to do it. But it's actually very challenging for early stage projects. Uh because yeah. the reality of an early stage project is you have no idea what you're doing. And every day yeah. you could be walking to lunch, whatever, like you just keep thinking yeah. and okay. iterating or you should be. But the other challenge that you pointed out at, which I hadn't thought about much till now is the individual's progression. Usually remote work works well when it's a very transactional sort of job. Yeah. Like I can work remotely with my accountant, although he could probably benefit from being in the same office and seeing what I actually do for work. Uh, but I can rather with the accountant because it's a very transactional operation. Yeah. We know where the job begins and where the job ends. But if you want to progress within a company, which often involves you learning new skills, mm -hmm. being given more responsibilities, like most people that I know that have really cool jobs or that are working on really cool things, it's a very non-linear path. Huh. It's an exercise of people around them identifying what they're really good at. Mm -hmm and them slowly morphing or evolving into whatever it is that they do now. And I think that you will probably have a hard time in showing people what you're passionate about and good about if you are always limited Zoom calls away. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. That makes a lot of sense. Like big corporate, they, they, they did a lot of stuff 20, 30 years and they know, okay, this is the, this is one thing that works. Let's do it like iteratively. And that's how they keep the business sustainable. So that's how what happened within the corporate life. But then for startups, yeah, I do think that creative works, that you need to talk with other people, you need to brainstorm, you need to work together with them. So then sometimes you just pop up some ideas and then you need to discuss with them like, like instantly, directly, which couldn't happen if you are working remotely. That's why we started from, we started with Tuesday, Wednesday for like work from office. And actually a lot of things are happening and the rest is more of executing the work, like finding the leads, pushing the messages, whatever it is, it's going to happen on yeah, remotely. Obviously the exception is 
for startups that are going to hire us East Blue to develop their shit. They can have their office. We can have our office. <laughs> and we can be at the office for month. So I'm going to clarify there. Um, no, I, I think that's good. I'm curious, you and Epic stayed in touch through Dota. Are there any lessons or have you ever thought about the things that make Dota a really successful game? Not just as something to have fun, but as a way for people to connect and to build strong communities. And whether there may be some lessons or some parallels there on how we could build successful web three mm -hmm. games or add web three elements to these existing web two games or just anything in general that may help us create stronger communities in okay. web three interesting so dota i think mike clark is like he loves dota does um, he damn i see a pattern here i should get into it <laughs> so, so it, it it's very challenging it's very hard compared to what the other you know they call it moba uh massive online battle arena like genres so moba it's I, I think it's the hardest MOBA compared to all the other like MOBAs out there, Dota. So for what are the other ones like League of Legends? League of Legends, we have Heroes of New Art and Mobile, we have Mobile Legends, whatever it is, but it can't be compared to Dota because Dota is, is just, it's just a different breed. It has a lot of different mechanics and it keeps changing quite a lot. So it means that we as players need to adapt with whatever new patches are. So I think that's one thing that can be that we can that can be a lesson learned for us as a business owner because you don't know you don't know every day there's going to be a lot of changes in your business not just your business but the whole situation of the market for example if you do it well in the bull market then you might not do it well in the bear market right so you need to keep changing your strategies make sure that you can adapt with the current market so that's one thing that we can learn from from i think playing dota and the second is that so uh -huh. like the resilience element Strategy, yeah. resilient. I, I think that's the word, like resilient. So the resilient, like whatever comes to us, we need to face it. We need to tempt to it. So and the second is the strategy, not really strategy. It's about like, the game mechanic of Dota. It's, it's, I like other games. For example, in other games, if you have one character, one hero, and he is the a carry type, end game type of character. So you need to farm source and then you'll, you'll be destroying all the other people in the, the late game, right? On the other games, one character usually only has one way to be played. In Dota, you can actually play it differently. For example, okay, this hero is known to be a late game hero. So you need to farm, you need to get all the monies, and then you buy the equipment, and it's going to destroy everything. But then in Dota, there are a lot of creative things that you can actually do. Okay, if I, if I pick this set of skills in the early game, then I might be a support character not a late game character. So this type of mechanics also really helps us a lot, especially in the crypto space, because you need to think differently. You need to think very creative, especially with the mechanism design of everything. Like it could be incentive, could be tokenomics, it could be all the other things. If you have the experience of, okay, this is not sustainable because this, this hero has a lot of tech power. This hero generates a lot of money. It is not sustainable. They need to do something. This type of mechanics is very useful for us building in the web space because we are very deeply working with this type of stuff. Like incentivizing the users, we cannot get them 1% every single month. That's not going to be sustainable business. So yeah, I think those two types of things are the ones that really helps us, help me and think on building startups, building a company. 
But other than that, I think it's more of like, well, I think it's more on the community side because Dota is competitive games. It means that you need to have your friends working with you, playing with you so that you can win against the other teams, which I think resembles a bot and resembles in the business. You need to bet with the others and you need to have your team set up. It's almost like a little training ground. There's no fixed set of rules, but you have mm-hmm. to think very proactively and very critically yeah, about yeah. the situation. But they have some rules, but then you need to, you need to adapt. Yeah, you gotta yeah. play the best hand yeah. the cards mm-hmm. given to you. But what I thought was interesting is the communication part. Because mm-hmm. you need to be able to communicate your yeah. vision or your interpretation yeah. of the opportunities, uh-huh. the non-conventional approach of doing things to your friends, and then use that against an opponent that may or may not have a similar understanding or a similar strategy. I really like that. In in some ways, I feel like social media is almost the complete opposite. There's, there's something about social media that forces people to converge on the same idea. Uh-huh. It, it's hard to think differently or it's hard to be unique and there's actually what i would describe as a dark side of community in a web we don't want to be different people don't want to be different a lot of projects are the same a lot of the marketing is the same yeah and the people that do something different i guess you always have imposter syndrome but at Uh some point you really do gotta wonder am i just completely off here or but as you said if Uh if you gotta win you have to do something different yeah I think that's why when we compare upon us to all the other like web projects, we're not that crypto natives where we just focus on let's market it to the crypto let's push it. So, okay, we have to find in, let's say in this chain, let's do it here in here, for example. We're not doing that type of strategies. So we are innovating, we are doing something different so that we could expand the like the web three audiences, not just the current audience. We tap in, we get money and whatnot. We need to expand them to me. Blockchain is a brick. It's a set of bricks. Bricks? Okay, yeah, set of bricks. Set of bricks, maybe some cement. It's cool. Like, you, if you tell you, well, blockchain is decentralized and immutable. All that means to me is you can build shit with bricks uh-huh. that's going to be strong. Uh, yeah. You can't push it over. It's going to be like a good. But then you have to start thinking, what do I want to build? Is uh-huh. it going to be a house? Is it going to be a building? Is it going to be a, a tower? Castle, car park, a castle in Burgundy. Are there any castles in Indonesia? Oh, wait, do I have that? We're going to have the first castle in Indonesia. Yeah, so I, I really like that, once again, it's a dance. It's like there's Web3 here, and then there's this knowledge and passion around comics. And we'll get into our canon in a second. One, I think what we lack the most in the Web3 is that it's, there are a lot of smart people in Web3, and all that they are doing is attacking each other. No. Yeah, right. <laughs> I don't think we need to compete with all the other layer ones, with all the other projects out there, because there are a lot of, there's still a lot of people that haven't been onboarded to Web3. So it means that we, uh, 99% of the world, yeah. Yeah. So we, have, we can actually find a market for the product. So it's not like us competing just for the crypto natives. It's more like us figuring out how we can get this. But this is a battle for the identity of Web3. Technologists and builders are actually not the same people. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I go back to my startup days, mm-hmm. 2016, super basic shit. Any mediocre accelerator instructor will tell you this. Growth mindset, fixed mindset. 
if you want to be a good entrepreneur, a good builder, you have to have a growth mindset. Whatever it is that you do, grows the pie. You don't have to be stabbing other people or shitting on other people to steal their market share. Yeah. You actually just want to grow it. Uber was never competing with taxes. Yeah. They just created an entire new category. Mm -hmm. I feel like in Web3, it's this really weird cannibalization where people that are not able to think of new ways to create value become very competitive. It's very tripe, very turf. I tweeted yesterday around the interesting dynamic of the near block space and these big projects creating a lot of transactions. I follow up a tweet which I may or may not have sent by the time the street goes live, is comparing the Ethereum block space with near block space. Because oh, Ethereum yeah. block space is basically full now. Yeah. And then it's technically deflationary. The problem is that when you project into the future, the number of projects that can be deployed on Ethereum and reach mass market is very limited. Yeah. So it's right. They're deflationary today, mm -hmm. but how much more can it grow? Mm -hmm. Near is the opposite. We're barely using the block space we have available. Yeah. But when you look at the potential for projects to build their very own customer solutions mm -hmm. and use more and more of our block space and burn more and more, basically Ethereum hit their ceiling and some people take that as a mission of success. Near has a lot of room to grow, but it's literally uncapped. And yeah. I hate talking about price. If Near were to grow to the same levels that Ethereum is now, it's, oh shit, that's a long way up. But what I try to invite people is to think how to grow past it. The only reason why Ethereum is not 10 times or 100 times or 1,000 times bigger is because it's technologically limited. Yeah. But if you remove those limitations and really it's just up to us to build something that can grow into it, I think East Blue with Arcana and when we introduce porn into a coma will be that. I've been drinking lots of water. It's very hot in Jakarta. I'll be a little dehydrated. So I'm going to go to the bathroom. And when I get back, we're going to jump into Arcana. Okay. How does that sound? Good. And I had something here. If you want to start thinking about it, because when I'm talking to play Ember team, there's a lot of similarities between what you're doing with your empire mm -hmm. and what they're doing, especially around experimentation, being very agile, testing ideas, being very smart on how you allocate resources. But there's one thing that really stuck with me, and I've been thinking about it a lot around, they're trying to think of ways in which they could cross-pollinate, or I guess, activate the users that enter the ecosystem through Play Ember, so that they become not just Play Ember users, but more like near users broadly. It's a classic dilemma that we faced with Sweatcoin, technically, there's millions of users, but yeah, they are very much limited yeah. to that application. So yeah, I'd like to learn more about Arcana broadly, and then maybe we can explore that challenge of having that transition from yeah. users coming in from a specific thing to them becoming web-free users or, or near users. Yeah. How does that sound? Yep, good. That's it. What can you tell yeah. me about Arcana? I was super excited to learn that the team behind Arcana was you, because I was doing this thing where I claim shark dogs and then I become really interested. I geek out with the number of transactions on chain. I love the Explorer and I found this little feature on Mintbase where I can see the live activity. It's both through Mintbase and broadly in the near ecosystem. And that's where I started to see a few projects putting through a lot of transactions. The Littles putting a lot of transactions. And there was one called Arcad. 
what is Arcana, sir? And why are you putting so many transactions on chain? Well, Arcana is, uh, is a co-membership and co-rewarded platform. So we basically work with brands and retails so that we can help them with memberships. And then we can work with them to reward their most active, loyal customers. So that's basically what Arcana is all about. So we did a couple partnerships. I guess the newest one was with Unipin. Unipin is actually a place where you can bought vouchers for games, for, for diamonds in the games. So yeah, we, we did a partnerships with them and we do a co-rewarding with Unipin so that we can give away some kind of this free games voucher so that people can top up their games. So that's basically the plan with Arcana. And so why we do it on chains, obviously, because we want to the people, the users to have the freedoms of own owning their own things. For example, they own their own memberships. They own their own set of points that they can by doing something for the brands that they love by. So we have several missions that the users can do. They can, for example, follow the social medias of, of the brands and they can also purchase in a minimum maybe $20, $30 and put it and send it to us and, and verify it with brands to see if they are real, and then we get them some points that can be used to get some rewards. So that's pretty much what Arcana is all about. We hope that we could bring like this NFTs broker type of things into the rewards with the help of these legitimate businesses and retails that we are working with. Nice. I'm wondering, because I, I can recall several projects with businesses, what is called book bulk nutrients in Australia. That's where I get a lot of my supplements and like biohacking weird shit. And they've got this thing called waypoints, like W-H-E-I, the protein. And I've accumulated for a few points over time. I think I've also seen that Shopify plugins uh -huh. where you can basically have some sort of like a rewards program in the box, sort of functionality. I'm trying to identify what would be the main pitch or the main advantage for having these kind of rewards programs, which I think that they tried and tested mm -hmm. very well understood, what will be the advantages or the special value proposition mm -hmm. of having it on chain? For example, if it's on chain, then nobody can change it. Nobody can remove your points. Like, But if I'm yeah. a brand, that's a negative. That's a... <laughs> well, when, yeah, we try so that's why I mentioned we want to work with legitimate businesses, right? So we don't want brands to do this type of stuff. On-chain, because if they couldn't do it on-chain, if everything's on-chain, then it can be verified by everyone. So, so that's the transparency aspect for why you want to be on-chain, to make sure that the brands can be trusted. And then, so we have this rifle, this rewards to all of the users, and that's actually on-chain through this verifiable random number generation by near blockchain built on near, so that people can actually see the proof that, okay, this is the winner, because it generated on blockchain, which means that nobody can controls who's going to win these raffles, these rewards. Then so adding them, transparency is one thing that we are going to uh, push on for, for marketing purposes so that not only the brands, but also the users can feel that we are, that they are not getting cheated by Arcana or the brand itself so that nobody can ask, nobody like us, like companies, brands, for us, Arcana, nobody no, no one can really cheat it on you. So that's one thing, transparency and the second is that it's a lot of like the composability, this 
all the other Web3 technology could have in the future. So it's more of a measure that we are future-proof for what would happen next in the next maybe five, 10 years. But overall, composability things that we, you know, that we want to see and want to recognize. If we are on-chain, then it means that all the other builders, all the developers that could build on top of For example, we have, I mean, we have a lot of users, we have a lot of coins. And imagine if you are a game studio, you want to tap into this type of users, you can just build directly on top of Arcana, market it to Arcana users, and then you suddenly have maybe, I don't know, 10,000, 20,000 users. I love real world examples that demonstrate the mantras that we keep repeating about Web3 and its benefits. Transparency. I'll give you a few examples of transparency. The thing is, I guess I knew this, but when I ran my little no-code projects, I really got to experience it. When you create something digital, like a product, you really are God. You control everything. Bro, I had access to that database. I can change your name. I can change your date of birth. I can change how many points you have. And uh, there's so many things that can go wrong when you have that level of malleability. The first thing that comes to mind that you've mentioned is somebody takes away your points. Dude, I've actually seen the opposite. I work at a company, whatever, Qantas freaking flyer, and I'm dating someone. Guess what I'm going to do? 50 million Qantas freaking flyer points. Who is there to say that they didn't uh-huh. earn those points? It's just a number on a database. Yeah. And the airline goes bankrupt. Let it be after I catch my flights. <laughs> so yeah, the, uh-huh. the having things on chain makes a lot of sense because it's transparency and accountability, not just for the users, but even for the company itself. Accountability, liability, there's a bunch of stuff in there. By the way, on this point, I don't want to go on a tangent, but did you see what Sweatcoin did? I don't know if you know it, I'm referring to it. I saw this on a near week newsletter. They put to vote what to do with whatever, like a lot of sweat tokens uh-huh. that had been earned by people, but it was sitting on inactive accounts. And they used it. They put it to vote, and obviously the people voted to fucking take it and burn it. And I was like, what the fuck? This is like a communist takeover. I don't think you should be taking people's points after they earned them. I, I didn't know that. <laughs> it's they fucked do it. up. Okay. They did it. It's a blog post. And I guess we're highlighting the, the power of governance, which I mm. think it's great that people can vote and stuff. But some things I believe should be out of reach. Once people mm. earn their points, I think you should take them away. Yeah. It's messed up. It's messed up. It's funny. Okay. I've got a few questions about Iconic because okay. I'm really excited. I remember when I saw you at, maybe it was Korea, at the event, whatever, seems of food. Could have been any what event. Is Built Asia, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah Built Asia. Built Asia. You were very humble. Yeah, there's another word to describe. You're very humble. And you were like, yeah, we're going to start first with Indonesia and maybe like India. You mentioned a couple of countries, like, oh, it would be small. And then you were like, yeah, hundreds, hundreds of millions of users. Yeah. I think it's really interesting that advantage that you have about being in this region. Yeah. Could you tell me a little bit more about like that vision for Kana and how many more brands are you talking mm-hmm. to? Do mm-hmm. you expect to onboard? How much is local? How is it different perhaps than other of the loyalty and rewards projects that another the foundation has been very active activating? I think we we're, we're more focused on the real world activities compared to just like a lot of this like like mission based growth 
platforms on Web3, they're more like focusing on doing a lot of things on social media, like for example, please retweet this stuff, like this stuff, follow us and whatever it is, it's 100% digital and social media, it, that's a group engine for, for Web3. But for Arcana, we're more focused on the real world mission. Right now, we're talking with several coffee shops, we're talking with several retails. I mentioned earlier, for example, if you purchase this minimum, just screenshot it or photo and send it to us and we'll give you the points. So that's the type of mission that we're going to focus on, not just like digital stuff. Obviously, like following on social media is good, but that's not all. We're going to put out a lot more diverse set of missions, set of activities for users. And we just discussed this for a week. I think we're going to do a lot more fun and exciting plus missions. It's, it's still in discussion with Tim and Trali, and I, I don't really know how we can execute it perfectly. I know. Can we create an Arcana mission project? I'm not really sure how it would look like for people to go to restaurants, photo of the meal, rank it on deliciousness, and then a photo of the meal at home. Oh, <laughs> and that's how it is. If we can call it proof of ghost. Proof of ghost, yeah. Proof of ghost. <laughs> and dude, if you think about it, if I'm a restaurant, I will probably be willing to pay to get the proof of ghost NFT because you know they're going to be a bunch of crazy people coming in, ordering one meal and one to take away. Dude, that's double the sales. <laughs> and guess what? If you market it to foreigners, you don't even give a shit if the food is actually good. You always keep getting new yeah. people. Brent, we do that shit in Bali. Where are we money? <laughs> we take over the island. Uh-huh. We can literally take this building and relocate it there. <laughs> I think it's a good picture. We're, yeah. we're going to check the details, but but yeah, but but, but I guess yeah. More of the type of community friends who work with local government is not like local businesses, so that can be used as part of the tourism initiative. So, for example, you need to visit Monas in Jakarta, take a picture, send it out, you'll get some points. These points can be traded for maybe Jakarta merchandise, some shirt or whatever it is. So the type of missions are the one that you are going to focus on, not just like digital, like part of it. And the web three businesses, we need to go global. So then uh, like for us, we still need to have this digital only business, uh, digital only like missions. For example, we need to follow the social media and whatever it is for the international audiences so that they can, they can still do something on Arcana, even though they're not going anywhere, like in Indonesia, for example. So yeah, that's, I guess, the that's unique awesome. selling points of Arcana. We're going to focus on like real world missions. That's awesome. Have you seen any other projects in Web3? It could be other blockchains or any other projects in general, even Web2, that have a similar approach to missions? Anything that you find inspiring? I haven't really seen one. I've seen a lot of like loyalty memberships programs, not just in Indonesia, but in somewhere in South Asia. Most of them, they just work with brands. Maybe they have a good big team, so they, can, they, they know how to onboard this, the, the, the businesses. But then it's just not fun. They just open it once time where they just want to get rewards, want to buy shit. And we don't want Arcana to be that type of application. We want Arcana to be the place where people can have some fun. So that's why in Arcana, we try to do something like, for example, we put up games on Arcana. It's simple games, it rock, scissors, and also spin wheel games, but we from there, but then we think that might be, we could scale it up, create a much better game, a much more fun game, so that people that go to Arcana, like they, they're not bonded to only just 
finishing up missions or like trading their points, claiming their rewards, but it's more of like they're having fun playing some games, perhaps with their friends. And that's another thing because we did our research, turns out that KFC UK, the KFC UK, they have these memberships programs where I guess they have 20% or 30% increase in users activity by putting a game on top of their app. They're getting more dollars, they're getting more apps, and they're getting more, and they're getting more dollars, they're getting more activities. You know which one would be a really good case study to look into as well? The McDonald's Monopoly game? The Monopoly game? Oh, yeah. yeah and I they said. still have it, but for several years, last time I remember doing it would have been maybe 2018, 2019. So the way it worked was every item that you bought, burger, fries, and drink. I'm getting hungry. Are you hungry? Let's go to a ghost restaurant. Yeah, so every item that you buy has a sticker. Mm-hmm. And when you peel the sticker, a thing, whatever, you collect and you enter them into the app. Okay. And uh, I guess that stickers have like different levels of value, mm-hmm. randomness, rarity. And eventually after you eat three deaths worth of food, diabetes and heart attack and shit, you may get free fries or something. But it was really interesting because... You're just gamifying an yeah. everyday interaction. And I'm not going to say whether I ate more or less McDonald's during those times. Because there was a time in my life where I was shitting shit. But I would imagine that it certainly has to increase sales. Mm-hmm. You're not going to lose out on any sales. Yeah. And some people would definitely try to collect them. Mm-hmm. So it'd be a matter of identifying the patterns on how to gamify. Which elements go in app, which are with three. And then probably trying to identify suitable partners. You know, is it going to be a restaurant? Is it going to be shopping? Maybe something around like sports teams. Uh-huh. Something where you can build an ongoing relationship with the user that they were going to do anyway, probably. Totally. So yeah, I think so organized world, the real world type of things, not just digital. So that's how I envision Arcana and what it would be in the future. That's awesome. The other thing that comes to mind is I'm very saddened that they no longer put stamps on passports. They still do, right? Depends on the country. Oh, it so depends on the country. In Indonesia, because they've been getting smart, now you need a visa, which you can get on arrival. Uh-huh. 50 bucks. I think it's just like a revenue collection thing. It'd be like, but if people are going to be coming get up in Bali, we might as well just charge them. And that one, they put the visa on the passport. It's cool. And it's on the same page as my visa for Korea. Same. Just get an arrival. Mm-hmm. Australia doesn't do visa and passports for like 10 years now. The US just mm-hmm. stopped doing the stamps on arrival. Slowly it's being faded out. My passport has a few stamps. I think Colombia, Costa Rica, Mexico, and Brazil. But yeah, over time, the trend seems to be no more stamps. So yeah, I feel like there's definitely a way to gamify and engage people. Mm-hmm. Especially tourism-wise. Probably we could identify local regional partners. Hey, we've got heaps of people going to Bali. And we try to pair up the experience so that they also come to Jakarta and spend a couple mm-hmm. of nights here. Yeah. We're doing it. That's really great. Ricky, you said something last week that slowly started to melt my mind. And I wanted to ask you on the mic. Okay. The moment of truth. We're talking about near scalability, sharding, and some of the technical features. And you mentioned something that I found fascinating. You mentioned that the near core tech stack 
could technically enable someone to launch their own with their own token, but on near. So okay. it's technically not a separate blockchain. So you get the best of all worlds in regards to the near tech stack capability, but also you have your own ecosystem. Would you be able to expand more on that? Okay. All right. So uh, this could happen thanks to you know, all the things that Nier just shipped for the last six months or so. So they have zero balance account and then they have meta transactions and they, and they, they, they already have the account abstraction since like years ago. And, and the account, you have this keys manager of the, the chains. So with all this tech stack that Nier has, it, it would allow everyone to build their own chains on top of Nier. The example is Aurora. Aurora is built on top of Nier and Aurora is actually just a smart contract on Nier. That, 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 that people can actually replicate and build another Aurora on top of Nier. But Aurora is an EVM. Yeah. So EVM is just a runtime. It doesn't need to be EVM. It could also be just your backend apps that do everything and push all the updates on chain. The cool thing about Nier key management is that when you log into an application, you don't authorize access to your entire wallet. You're only approving the methods for that application. Yeah. Uh -huh. And you could even do it customized uh -huh. in different ways, which is great in terms of security. If a scammer gets you, they may be able to impersonate application and maliciously get mm -hmm. more access than they should or they yeah. normally would have for that application. But in general, as long as you're not getting like proper right, uh -huh. like a phishing attack, it's a much more secure. Could I steal everyone's thing on EVM because it's got that more general permissioning, like on Aurora? Or how? Because what I'm trying to think yeah. of is, does Aurora overcome the technical limitations or I guess like less than ideal setups of EVMs? Or is it basically the same, which leads some people to think that over time, people would be more likely to build a near native just to have a more powerful oh, solution. Yeah, yeah. It definitely Aurora has its own like limitations due to EVM. EVM runtime has its own like limitations. It is, I believe it, it is a single credit runtime. So it, it cannot process a lot of things in parallel compared to Nier's where Nier can have, Nier has a sharding mechanism that Nier can process a lot of different things like in different like separate chains. So yeah, uh, Aurora has no limitation, EVM has no limitation, and I don't think Aurora can, can solve the problems, the EVM's problem. Technically, it, it's the best way for you to build directly on Nier instead of building on, on Aurora, for example. In that case, it means that why Aurora is a thing. Why don't people just build on it? It's because they built Aurora to capture all these native users where they used to doing metamorphs, approving transactions and everything. But the secret is there are no users on Ethereum, yeah. by the way, on EVM. On, on Ethereum or, or? In general. In general. I think we're creating fake problems to pretend like we have a solution, to pretend like the problem doesn't exist. Mm. So for instance, the way that I see it, Ethereum has very limited block space, which means that a small group of people can max it out. Yeah. Which then push us to have layer twos. Uh -huh. Oh, yeah. And now that we have layer twos and we realize that, so we're not getting as much use as we expected. There's going to be a consolidation probably at some point, but then we're able to put that into the future because there are more and more layer twos. Huh. So yeah. now the problem is not where are the users and where are they going to consolidate. Now the problem is let's just see all the L2s that come to market 
to then pick a winner to then consolidate. Oh, like it, it's like we keep deferring yeah. the yeah. fact that we don't really have anything to do on chain, or there's just this relatively small group of people. Uh-huh. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense actually. Yeah, so that's that's why like I think it this morning that we we've been, we've done it in the infrastructure we need was some pricing apps. Was it you? I liked it this morning. It was a good yeah. time. <laughs> we need to stop thinking about building on infrastructure because I don't know, like building a, a new layer one or new layer two, it gives you a lot of valuation, a big valuation from It makes your dick grow like 10 centimeters. Yeah. So I think that's, the, I don't like from, I don't know, but, but from the feasible perspective, I think it's just a lot more sense for them to just invest in layer one or layer two because these people, all the crypto natives, they believe that at least this L1, I'll just work at least 50 million, 100 million. And if the thesis invested in them at the 10 million volition, then it's like 5x, straight 5x from the thesis side. So I think that's why thesis love to fund this type of things. Yeah. Instead of like constant raising. It's like the constant it ranges from 100 million uh, volition to like maybe 1 million volition. And that's what. I'll tell you a funny story. Back in the day, I went to a party in San Francisco from Neo. N-E-O. Oh, yeah. Okay. Chinese. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think it was Anchors before. And this was really early. This was 2018. Early days of the idea of having a skill blockchain. One of the stories, I'm in San Francisco, which is a builder's mecca. And I'm at this Neo party, free drinks, food, honky-dory. Those were the good days. The, the old good days. We had good days again in the 2020s. And I couldn't believe that every single person at the party was an investor. And I just kept asking people, is there anyone here building? No. Answer was no. When you have more investors and builders in an ecosystem, you just know that it's a bubble. Because it means that everyone's made money from the asset that they're holding is meant to be backed up by the actual innovation behind it. So I feel like the safest bet that people can make is go for the highest level of abstraction, base currency above a layer one. Because you don't really care who wins. As long as someone is winning or someone is building on top, you get to capture that yeah. growth. For near, we don't really care which of the 18 Web 2.5 deals that we signed wins. All that we care is that at least half of them make it. And that we go from 800,000 transactions a day now to 8 million in all. That's all yeah. we give a fuck. Uh-huh. It's much harder uh-huh. to be the project pumping those transactions. So, yeah, I, I think that's what you're alluding to uh-huh. there. People try to reduce the risk by going to the base. Yeah, more generic, right? Yeah. Don't have to pick whether it's yeah. going to be Kai Kai or Sweatcoin or Ankara. Kind of. But that's a good name as well. Yeah. So the fourth venture, Ankara, just so that we can spin interchangeably. But if you had to summarize in three sentences or less the following concept, okay? Imagine that I'm six years old. Okay. Account abstraction. Zero balance accounts. Okay. Meta transactions. I think that we've got enough of those three. Huh. How do I explain it to six-year-olds? A smart six-year-old. A smart six-year-old. Or a dumb 12-year-old. Take a pick. Take okay. a pick. It's, I think it's hard to explain them, but... Maybe useful if we look at it from like the lenses of the product or the user. Like, uh-huh. what could you build with it? And clearly with all these things that I mentioned, you have the power of Web 2 texting while you're building a Web 3 apps. Is that new? Is that novel? Is that unique? I think so, yeah. 
for example, with the kind of restrictions, then you can let your users use this emails, users, social logins, whatever it is that could happen with kind of restrictions. And with zero balance account on year means that you don't really need to deposit your own money into that account. You just need to pay with buy transactions, which is quite normal in the web to industry. AWS pay for transactions. That's like the normal business. So yeah, you have your knowledge in web to tax tax and then just use all the things that I mentioned on year. You, you, you can obviously build something with them, whatever your knowledge is. Web2 industry apply to and credit a new Web3. Which for the aliens that have apparently been here for a long time, but hypothetically, if they were to come into the office right now, that it would be what makes sense, right? Uh-huh. If you've got processes and technology and products that work in Web2, the most logical thing would be to try to replicate some of those user mm-hmm. flows into Web3. You mentioned that Arcana was a project that made the most sense around the near foundation KPIs, but also the near technical capabilities. Mm-hmm. Are these the technologies that you were referring to? Like how is Arcana using account abstraction now? We use a kind of for end users. So the users don't need to know the private key. They don't need to know all the things about private, public, cryptographic kind of things. So what these hundreds of thousands of users that you already have, you no, mentioned 350 or 400, they've never seen a private seed phrase. Yeah. No seed phrases, no private keys. They stores directly on their devices and they log in, they've got to in it. And we store like the, the, we store the private key in the AWS MS key management system, which can be accessed by their accounts. Is that a custom AWS solution for like storing this kind of sensitive information? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's... Are there any Web2 equivalents that you can think of? That uses AWS key management system? I think a lot of people do, especially the especially the, the software as service that focuses on the devs. The developers, for example, so we need to store some of the secret key, private key, API keys, whatever it is, we need to store them like separately. So we use this KMS to store it so that our the only thing that can access this API keys are our servers. So the our server will talk directly with the it can be a through a lot of different things. One is that through the IP. So only this IP can access these keys. So that's one example. And for us, only this email can access. Don't say which email. Yeah. That's the end user's email. They can all access. We can Oh, access okay, okay. Them. Oh, that's awesome. So we can access them. Yeah. The reason I ask is because, once again, we always have to go past the superficial first reaction. If we were being funny and lazy and not asking questions, storing private keys on like an AWS server, generic, sounds pretty bad. Yeah. Uh-huh. Sounds like uh, the people that were fucking in the Bahamas XCX storing private keys on an unencrypted folder. In general, bad look. But it's actually really interesting to me. I'm learning a lot that there are best practices in Web2 around AWS key management systems and that near enables you to leverage those best practices from Web2 to create the best possible experience in Web3. Yeah. So we're going on the user journey. Arcana users log in with their email. 400,000 users. They've never seen a seed phrase. So far, so good. Yeah. So we try to have web user journey for our end users so that they don't really need a lot of different like web changes and everything else. And we also abstract away the gas fees. And so we... Before we get to the gas fees, zero balance accounts. Zero balance accounts. If we were to put it in the context of Arcana. So for example, Sweatcoin, Layember, and also Kaching, they need to deposit some nears for the end user's wallet. And what it 
the users know that, okay, this is my private key. I can just log in. I can take away all my posited near that, I, that, that is being deposited by Sweatcoin by the admin. Is that because they were deployed before this latest update? Yeah, but not sure if they already migrated all things. But, you know, before the zero balance count happened, deployed, you, you need to deposit at least zero one year or something for accounts to be, you know, to be available to, to exist on blockchains. Right now, you don't need to deposit anything. You just need to create it, pay the guest fees, and it's there. It's on-chain. Is it real risk that the user will take the money, which is a very small amount of money for one user? Or the real downside is for the business to have to cover the cost of an account creation when the user may not actually be an active user? So, for instance, if we just back up the envelope and we look at Arcana, let's assume it's one cent mm -hmm. per user and you've got 400,000. Let's say that 800,000 yeah. traded accounts, but only 400,000 are active. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's the opportunity. You'd be losing like $4,000 or something. Yeah. Just by creating yeah. the account. Just by creating the account. So that's like, yeah, I, I think that's also the bad thing for a company. It's it a lot of different accounts, which is not active. It might be considered as was. So that's that's a big no for, for a company. So that's why I guess the balance got I mean, a lot. It, it can be budget, right? If you were evil. Yeah. And but you you're a competitor. <laughs> if you know that your competitor has to pay one cent for each fucker that signs <laughs> up, guess who's going to get a lot of <laughs> signups tonight? Exactly. If I, I know. That you're burning near for every person that signs up, and I want yeah. the price of token to go up. Yeah, we're signing up six hundred billion people tonight. So yeah, I think that's then that's why Zeno Balance Con is is changing a lot of things that happen on near ecosystem. That's awesome. And after the user signs up, no seed phrase, they can create an account without the business incurring any cost, brings down the cost of acquisition, etc. Then you mentioned meta transactions. Uh -huh. Yeah. So meta transactions allows users to sign the transactions because they want the private key. So they sign the transactions. So we know that they did real users doing some actions on our front end. They sign the message, they give it to us. If we know that this is our contracts, there's some actions that we allow, then we just push it onto chain. So we basically pay the guest fees for our users. So we mint the NFTs for them. Basically, what is push points on chain for them? So the users doesn't need to understand anything about near about the guest base, and so that's how Arcana works with all these three technologies. So if we have to explain or draw parallels on how it would normally work, say on Ethereum or Solana, I'm not too familiar with other ecosystems. Would the points of friction normally be? that the user needs to download a wallet, that the user needs to back up a seed phrase. Like, what would be the key differences on the same user journey? It, it, it is all about the gas fees that, you know, that trends people to not use the apps because it pays them some money. Even though it's 0.01, they need to put their money on the cryptos, on chains. So that's the hardest part. That's the blocker of a lot of crypto adoptions. And, and that's even assuming that they downloaded the wallet. Yeah, they, they don't have the one seed race. Yeah. Some were safe. Yeah. yeah. I can guarantee you that most people on mobile wallets have a screenshot on their phone. And yeah, it's a real issue. So I guess my question to you would be, and I know that you're in conversations with blockchain ecosystems and with all the builders, so we're all one big happy family. Why aren't more people excited to leverage these technical capabilities? create a web to like application in web three. It's a long term 
strategy and business, I'll say, to do this type of stuff. Compared to, for example, if you build for crypto natives that already put their money in to some DeFi, some kind of things, you just market it to them. They already have the money on chain, means that they can spend it much easily on this new project. So short-term wise, if you try to make short-term profit, then that's obviously the easiest way to go. Just go to the biggest chain, the hypest chain. For example, right now it is Coinbase, base, right? So then you just deploy some kind of like meme tokens, you just deploy some kind of DeFi, borrow lending, whatever it is, and you get money. Like short-term money, that's practically very easy. If you go to the crypto net, because they already deposited a lot of money on chain. Yeah. But if you're going to about the mainstream audiences, they're not going to pay you on day one. They're going to try it out. They're going to, for example, test it out and later on, they'll pay for you. It might take maybe a month, two months, three months for them to pay you something. So it's an investment. That's why I want to take this path. Because it's, it's a lot more expensive, I'll say. It's a lot more expensive, obviously, because you need to spend marketing, you need to spend a lot of things to make sure that the users love their products, which leads to them paying for your products. What you're trying to say is we can still do the short-term move of building the things that, to me, this is just copy-paste. We've got the same DEXs yeah. and the same AMMs and the same uh, blending markets and the same scam, what's it called? Same scam meme pointers yeah. being deployed on the L2 of the day. Arbitrum, Optimism, Base. So there's a market for that, both for developers and I guess users chasing airdrops, etc. And then for people that want to build a real business, it just takes longer and takes mm -hmm. more money. Like yeah. the venture hasn't been de-risked. Would it then be right to say that the challenge that we have in Web3 now is how to transition from this true and tried successful business model, let's call it whatever Ethereum has, to the next stage of mass applications that feel like Web2, but may not resemble much what we have right now on Web3. Because what I find mindfucking is that if we take into account Sweatcoin and Kai Kai, just those two, I'm pretty sure that Nier already has more daily active users than most of Web3. You get into a, a nomenclature and a category issue about whether they're really Web3 users or not. Calling it Web 2.5 seems appropriate because it's like a step in the right direction. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on how that transition may look like. Will Web 3 hardcore natives one day embrace doing whatever they're doing in Web 3, but with better UX? Or do we almost have to like reverse engineer away from like Web 2.5, just get a shit ton of users mm -hmm. brand new, but we show them what real UX looks like and then try to expand what they do on chain. All right. So I do think like UX wise, all things that happen on web trees, for example, Uniswaps, it, that's easy from my perspective because I already learned how everything works. For example, something and I need to swap something. And then I have guest piece to, to pay all the costs. That, that, that's easy. Part. We've got Stockholm syndrome. If I don't see the MetaMask times, I don't feel like I'm doing it right. Yeah, that's one way to, to see it. But then I think how we progress from Web2 to Web2 is that, yeah, we have Web2.5, which obviously like Arcana, like Sweatcoin, like other types of, like types of like Web2.5 dApps where it gives a lot easier logins, social logins, and it's abstracted away all the guest fees and everything else. 
But then once the user understands that, okay, I need to have this gas fees to pay for my transactions. And once they already deposited some money, it could be dollars, it could be fiat, which I don't think that it needs to be cryptos, like real cryptos, it needs to be stablecoin. That's a big win for the whole ecosystems. What I envision as Web3 is that everything is going to be on-chain, means that all the money that we have is going to be on-chain. And if that happens, then we can tap into the global liquidity, which is all the money in the world, easily. So, so the step from no, Web2 point of Web3 is that how the users can deposit all their money into blockchains. So once we have and, that, yeah. they can actually do a lot of things on-chain. Or how can we take all their money and shut down the business? That's... I heard the kind of strategy before. I think it was called scam. <laughs> Scandinavian block. <laughs> scan, scan. <laughs> scan, scan the blockchain for opportunity. Scan and then, no, I like it. I like it. I, because that's one of the things where I feel like I am the odd one out by thinking about products and like long-term things that could really use a good user experience. When I see a lot of people in Web3, just going for, oh, this chain has a users, which users, yeah. right? TVL, yes, in a specific category, in specific settings. I'm very multi-chain, but the more that I explore other ecosystems, I always keep coming back to near on that user experience side of things. I just want to abstract away all the bullshit. I don't really care if it's executing on Solana, in Aptos, in Soe. I'm actually quite fond of these Rust-based blockchains. I think they have great ecosystems and community, uh-huh. but it's always that hard truth of, would I be able to onboard my friends to this? And it's just very hard. Like most people don't really care or want to. If you're passionate, if you're a geek, it sounds like assembling your own computer. Could you do it? Yes. Are most people going to do it? No. Most people want a MacBook that you will never be able to open, not even to change a battery. Closed system, it just works. The more performant, the more beautiful, the more social status it gives you, the better. People just don't want to build shit. There is, I'll talk to the marketing people. Near is and should be the iOS, MacBook, the blockchain operating system, Ethereum and EVM over time will be the Raspberry Pi. Oh, okay. You build, you tinker, you assemble. It's fun. You've got projects. There's always something to do. It's for people that are smart, creative. It's just not mass market. Yes. That's what it is. And I hate to say it, but dude, you're not going to believe this. But the traffic in Jakarta between my hotel and this office, I probably saw like 600,000 people on the street. <laughs> that is not true. How many of them do you think we could onboard to Web3 right now if we walk outside? Like Web3 2.5. That's a fantastic nuance. I could bring it up. <laughs> to Ethereum, I would I... say minus 10. Medicine. We would try, they would punch us and steal our money, and now we're yeah. not users either. We're negative. <laughs> Maybe something like near. It's trouble. It's trouble. Scan yeah. QR code, key management in AWS. Uh-huh. We're in. That's my run. Thank you. Yeah. Ricky, just really briefly, I'm really I, curious on how knowledge spreads the things that Paris has learned, the lessons, where you're going. How can we convey that? to new builders and make sure that every new person that comes to the ecosystem, they don't have to reinvent the wheel. Things like key management on AWS or even like Fastall. 
I heard that they're mm-hmm. building an SDK for Sweatcoin, zero knowledge accounts for new projects. If they go to a GitHub and they see an old repository, they may not know about this. Are you guys active in like developer chats? What will be the best ways for people to want to learn and collaborate with you to get in touch? Have you organized meetups in Jakarta to spread all that knowledge and experience? For the start, we do have Paras Dev Telegram. So it's, uh, should be Paras underscore Dev. That should be our Telegram for all developers related activities. Can be there. Like, like Telegram account? Like outside people can come and yeah, outside people can just come and go, come and chat and, and, and see if they have any kind of like problem with NFTs or whatever it is, we'll be very happy to to chat with you guys. So that could be a start. And then what else? Technically, Nero actually has a good documentation with everything that I mentioned earlier, but it's just not well published. So you need to, okay. And to find this NEP widget near enhancement proposal, this NEP with methodization and this, and you know, within this. NMP, then I can get this website. I forgot what the name, but it's basically a wiki about near technical stuff. If you take a look at it, it has some kind of like all the things, all the standard that you, that, that could help you build a very powerful near apps. So yeah, huh. I guess near already has a lot of things that, that you need to build a very good G apps with a very good user experience. And I do think by the end of this year, they are going abstractions the end users directly. So well, the idea of you having your own native currencies, it could work like near, like natively will allows you to pay gas fees with USDT, with table coins, and perhaps later on, you'll be able to pay the gas fees with your own token, as long as you have enough liquidity, for example. It's a very wonderful things to have in a blockchain means that you don't really need to introduce a lot of mechanics, a lot of tokenomics and everything else to the end users. For example, when you build these ABC apps, for example, and you have your own tokens, which is ABC, and that's the only thing that the users need to consider. They don't really need to understand, okay, I need to have my near to pay the guest fees and ABC to pay for something. They only need to use the ABC token to pay everything and also pay the guest fees. So I think that what abstracts everything away and makes, and making your apps very simple and it's, easy to use. The thing is, we're not used to paying for interactions. Yeah, uh-huh. for interaction, yes. And that may be an interesting framework because what is technically a transaction on the blockchain is what would be an interaction with a Web2 application. You know, we think uh-huh. of near social. I'm interacting with you. I double, double tap and I like your photo on Instagram or something. That would be a transaction on the blockchain. We're not used to paying for that. Mm-hmm. So I think that's going to be great that people can use their own token to pay for things. I'm wondering if it is in some way at odds with same meta transactions where we just don't have the user pay for anything. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that should also work with meta transaction. Then that you need to pay for all the rest and then you need to do, which is what resembles the web to of world right now. So for example, on Instagram, when you double tap, it costs them something. Cost them bandwidth, it costs them some kind of a competition, even though it's very small. It so, costs right? them and it sometimes may cost you as well. Yeah. Dignity. <laughs> relationship. <laughs> Bro, I know people. Not me. Oh. Definitely someone. Not me. I, I've got a friend. Yeah. And someone. Stalking someone. Stalking someone. Okay. Two things went wrong. First, go back to photos from 2017. Big dubious behavior. The second one, not me, my friend. Try to zoom in uh-huh. and accidentally oh. double tapped, okay. which means now the stalker, the stalked victim 
not behavior that we endorse, got a notification from this creep liking a photo from 2016 or whatever, long time ago. And yeah, my feedback to the product managers would be, you got to think of all these use cases. The, the double tapping and the zooming mm -hmm. in, bro, that's dangerous behavior. I think this is product thinking. I love product. You asked me before this podcast if I want to build shit. I'm dying to build shit. I hate governance. People don't believe this. I actually hate it. I'm okay with talking shit, but I really want to build stuff. Dude, product thinking. If you are liking a photo from 17 years ago, the app should ask you before it likes it automatically, do you really want to do this? Yeah. That is an example. That's the easiest thing that they can actually deploy, update, right? Because one year ago photos, then you double click it, then you have the pops. Because like, I think they're doing that now. I think they're doing that now when you send a really aggressive message. Like you're a piece of shit. Can't they be like, would you really want to see it? Sounds like you're a little bit upset. So those are all examples of trying to think what is a user feeling and experiencing as they go through your application. Bro, the most frequent feedback that I give people is, this needs more contextual information for Web3. They literally deploy the smart contract and there's half a screen and a button. And I was like, what are we meant to be doing here? You know who I gave that feedback to recently? Who I love dearly, but he's an engineer in every way. Joe from Shard. Oh yeah. I told him, dude, Shard the comic's fucking great. I'm collecting those panels every day. I'm just not entirely sure what I'm doing. The panels are not numbered. Nowhere on the screen does it say, come back every day. You missed this one. What happens at the other? Just put more information. Yeah. Don't be afraid to tell the user what they're meant to be doing or what happens next. That's why I really get excited. And by the way, um, Jeff Bissinger from Centauri. Oh, yeah. He's great. Messaged me recently. I think we want to start like a product group oh. on Near. Okay. Because yeah, once you abstract some of the technical friction, okay. the world really is our oyster. So I'm, I'm going to put it to you. I know that some people at the foundation are listening. How much money for a coma to go on chain on Near? What do we want? This is a big ask. This is like Shark Tank, but like little dolphins on Near. Should I answer it? Too high. Why not? The biggest challenge that we have is always communication. I very rarely find that people are malicious or not willing to do things. Most of the times they're just clueless. Foundation has a lot of people join over time. Some may be lacking context. Some are still learning the ropes. Some are just busy with things. Sometimes you've got to manifest to the universe. Sometimes you're just going to say things explicitly. We don't want to lose a talented team like you. I personally think that a coma is just getting started. Potential. What would it take? Let's just drop some random numbers. So I heard that from somebody. I have a lot of people here in the ecosystem. So I heard that foundation give you some numbers around 500k. I do think that what it would take for us build natively on here for all the projects that we're going to build in the future. If the foundation would like to, I don't know, invest or get it up some grants around 500k, I think like down, shoot a lot of stuff on chains on here, creating more web 2.5. So yeah, I think that's, because we love, like we love the tech. It's just sometimes like we don't have the same KPIs, we don't have the same alignment with the foundation. So that's why, okay. It, okay. Don't ask me how I know, but I know that is 
roughly the figure that the near Vietnam hub is operating on. And as a regional hub, obviously they've got a different set of criteria mm -hmm. or KPIs. I personally think in hindsight, it's always obvious there's near eight big conference. Okay. And I think that some of the KPIs for regions should be the amount of projects with mm -hmm. users in that region. We want to decentralize not just the technology, but the actual growth in teams. I would be really interested to see what could be put under that umbrella. We've got a number that could be KPIs around internal project execution and users. Mm -hmm. They could potentially be KPIs around having dev capability available for other projects. They could potentially be KPIs for growing the region, like on the community side. I'm not entirely sure what the collaboration is now with New Indonesia, but there may be areas there. I think that overall, it's never really an issue of the dollar amount. It's more, okay, how do we structure this to make uh -huh. sense? The other thing that comes to mind is, and by the way, this is something that I just start saying more often, see how we can mix and match. So that, for instance, the foundation matches money into Paras that we can get from external investors. If I find $100,000 in Australia from Australian investors, they put in another 100000 You know where I got that idea from? My brain, because I'm a fucking genius. <laughs> I don't think that's, that's, that's a good idea. That's yeah. a really good idea. Startup Nation, fantastic book. I read it back in 2016. Israel did that. Like the, it's been a long time, but very loosely, there was a national investment fund that would basically match dollar to dollar VC money. Oh, wow. Or I think it was, they matched one-to-one -one limited partners money going into VCs. Oh, I see. And they may have done it for some project downstream. The point is, try to find incentives where we can get external money in. Big KPI at the moment we're actually falling behind on. But also send a strong signal. At the moment, what I perceive is most investors are afraid to put money in because they don't know who else is in. Huh. And they don't know for how long they're going to be there. So if I were the foundation, I'd be like, hey, how can we signal that we're going to be here for the long term? That we mean business. You put a dollar, we put a dollar. We'll manage the relationship to some extent. We'll help with the KPIs. We'll make introductions. If they've got a BD team and we've got issues here with marketing and BD, let's meet in the middle. We'll build, you find deals, give me half the cash, we'll get investors, and then eventually somebody pays. Like, these are the conversations that I think make sense, right? Yeah. Let's do it. 20% right. founder fee. The other thing that I really want to make sure that we do is I want to introduce you to the Play Ember guys. Uh -huh. There's a big question that I think that with the cracker, it's going to be huge, is going to be how to ensure that all the users that are coming in from these Web 2.5 platforms, including Arcana uh -huh. and Acoma, are then able to spill out the broader new uh -huh. ecosystem. Yeah. I know the Play Ember guys are really proactive in thinking about that. They're going to start putting a lot more effort in creating their ecosystem of applications and users. But yeah, if you have any idea on how that could be done, definitely we should have a, like an elite round table, 100,000 plus users get together with a specific challenge of how might we convert these users, which are most likely single app users into like multiple app users. Or uh -huh, yeah. Because we may even be able to incubate new type of application 
it will be the easiest or the most likely to for all these users to then use on chain. We actually think about about it for for Arcana and cannot really say it here, but I'll tell you later on. Should I mute the mic? <laughs> there you go, friends. Look, I've been talking for a long time. There is always a lot said in between the lines. There's always a lot said when the mic goes off. There's always sneaky follow-up messages and DMs that I get. Only thing I can say is thanks so much, Ricky, for your time. Thank you so much, everybody, for coming to the office in person. This is wonderful. I don't know if the 4K camera is going to show this, but we are uh, sweating in here. Uh, it's, yeah. it's hot. It's hot. Um, the temperature, the, the spiciness, the insights. <laughs> it's been amazing to learn from your experience. I thought I was going to learn more about Paras, but your journey has taken you into so many new places, so many new challenges that all it needs is $500,000. I, I really like that builder ethos. And I think that we're really privileged in the ecosystem to have builders like yourself, especially now exploring multi-chain because there's definitely a lot of lessons yeah. and experience from other ecosystems as well. And uh, yeah, any yes. alpha that you want to share, you're always welcome back. Thank you, Ricky. Thank you, everybody. That's the end of another episode. As always, I just want to thank you for listening because let's be honest, you are amazing. And I also want to remind everyone that everything contained on this episode is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast shall be construed as financial, medical, or any other type of advice. And you should always consult with licensed professionals before making any financial decisions. Make sure that you like and subscribe so that you stay up to date with the latest episode. We've got a steamy hot pipeline of guests that will keep you entertained right through the bear market. Stay safe out there, and I'll see you soon. Bye.